Mwah! Welcome to the very echoey Cathedral of Chaos for Trailer Trauma 4 Audio Commentary. I'm Grady Hendricks, author of My Best Friend's Exorcism and Paperbacks from Hell. I'm Michael Gingold from Room Org, Birth Movies Death, and author of the Fright Fest Guide to Monster Movies. I'm Chris Pajali from Temple of Schlock. And we're going to be watching lots of very brief uh, TV spots, so we're not going to have a lot of time. Let's jump right into Rabbit from David Cronenberg. I hope we see that shot we just saw again of her waking up. I bet we will. Uh, this movie, uh, this trailer makes a lot of Marilyn Chambers' involvement. Um, she, of course, was well known for her adult films. Uh, I believe that uh, Sissy Spacek was a possibility for this role, but the producers wanted Marilyn Chambers okay, for that notoriety. There it is, yes, several times. There is a scene in which she passes uh, a poster for Carrie in the film, and I always had to wonder if that was Cronenberg thumbing his nose at the producer saying, look who we could have gotten in this film, but we got Marilyn Chambers. Ah, uh, poor Carradine. He had just been in an Ingmar Bergman movie right before he made Death Sport, Serpent's Egg. Mm -hmm. This must have been a big come down for him. And by all reports, there was so much cocaine on this set <laughs> from, from what I've heard. Uh, Claudia Jennings, who died the very next year after making this, said she was so high she barely remembered making this movie. It's funny because when I first... When I first heard the title Serpent's Egg as a kid, I thought it was an exploitation film. I was disappointed to learn it was an art film. Different kind of exploitation. <laughs> Indeed. Big Bird Cage. Is this Philippines? Philippines? Yep. Roger Corman Goes to the Philippines, part one. And uh, this is a TV commercial because uh, they say the N-word in it, and I didn't know yeah. you could say the N-word in commercials. Yeah. I guess you could back then. It was you a different time. You see somebody getting strung up by her hair also. Yeah, this is pretty rough for a TV commercial. Yeah, yeah, I think that happened go. all the time in the Reaching 70s. <laughs> That's just normal. Shampoo commercials. Yeah, you saw that on street corners. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one quick thing to note as we approach the end... Oh, he just wants to put some hydrogen peroxide on that wound. Uh, as we approach the end of this, you will notice that there are these long, awkward pauses at the end of these trailers. And that was so the local cinemas could come on and do a quick voiceover. Now playing at the Karoko 4 down on Highway 17. For one week only. One week only. So, See, can we long have, and awkward. Can we have some caged heat now? That was Ron Gans doing the narration, who does the narration from most of these trailers. Yeah, he's a very familiar... We're going to hear a few familiar voices repeatedly throughout this. He does this one, too. Uh, but he did not do the narration for the Death Sport trailer, even though he narrates the actual movie. Really? Yeah. God, man. I've <laughs> never seen Death Sport, I must confess. I actually watched it just because I was like, I should watch everything that's on this compilation, and I regretted that decision still today. Did you do a marathon of every film on this entire selection? You know, I didn't because Death Sport kind of hurt me so badly. I stopped there. The second one that right. I gave up. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Demme's yeah. royal debut. Oh, uh, yes. I always like it when Maybe people tack up an American flag in the wall in the back for like mm -hmm. production value. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see that in Blood Eaters, too, later on. I it always makes, one of those. It always makes the scene look classier. Well, they used to have like a, a running joke in a lot of the New World movies. They would always have a picture of the president in the United States in the background. Now up, it is Women in Cages, which is Roger Corman Goes to the Philippines Part 2. Uh, 1971, Jerry DeLeon shot it. Um, and I've sort of come to the theory that women in, women in prison movies set in the Philippines are basically summer camp films. The campers show up in their <laughs> uniforms. Here's the mess hall where you can get some delicious grub. Uh, you know, you've got an evil lesbian prison counselor. Wait a uh, second, I never had horseback riding. summer camp. 
I missed out. Cutting up in the mess hall, food fights. I like they're wearing peas, which is like for prisoner. Uh, so in other words, Gorp, Gorp is a remake of this, in other words. <laughs> Guillotines, which you have at every good summer camp I went to. I went to Bible camps. Um, so that's what they did to the misbehaving kids? Exact phallic imagery. Big at summer camp, snakes in the beds, you know, snakes in the bunk, slot bucket, machine guns. Always a big, it's like the rifle range. Water activity. Oh, nipple kick. Down the stairs. <laughs> Hiking. And, and our old friend gang rape. <laughs> that's not funny. We shouldn't laugh at no. that. No. Uh, Roger Corman goes to the Philippines part three for the woman hunt. Um, and this movie sucks. Have y'all seen it? I have not seen this one. Every action scene in this takes place in the last 10 minutes. But that is Eddie Garcia, who was one of the biggest uh, actors and directors in the Philippines. Um, he's got something like 300 credits. Uh, he, direct, he won like five Best Director Awards. And he actually just showed up to play a cop in an open audition in 1949. He was a military policeman. Um, and he dared to have a mustache when most Filipino actors were uh, clean-shaven. So he was very noticeable. And when Filipino cinema got super serious in the 70s, he was like someone who was already a matinee idol who was willing to be in movies playing gay characters in uh, Dipped in Gold, which is like the first movie to treat a gay character seriously in the Philippines. And so he became a, a go-to for a lot of directors. And even today, he will be in movies and sometimes take no fee just to help out an independent director. And that's how we don't talk about the woman hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have the cremators. Great balls of fire. Oh my god. So, Does this have another title? Um, I don't. I think it, it probably did. It's it's a uh, it's a film from the sixties. Most of them had at least one or two other titles. This used to show up a lot on late night TV. That's where I saw. Yeah, I remember it had a really great, really frightening looking poster. And uh, then you see this, and it's not quite as scary. And well, you'll you'll see a lot of that in a lot of these things. Um, you know, it's a shame there can't be like kind of a companion volume of posters for uh, a lot of these commercials because um, a lot of them sold sold these movies on really great uh, explicit imagery. And then when you see what the movies have to offer via the trailers, it's not quite as spectacular or as good. But um, this is Harry Essex, right? I believe so. Yeah, and Maria de Aragon who played uh, Greedo. Oh really? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> and now nurse movies. Yeah. Nurse movies. Again, a TV spot here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they got away with a lot back. I wonder if some of them were made only to be shown on late nights and, and not shown during prime time. Well, there was actually, I was going to say, you know, in, um, what should I call it? In, on 9-11-2000, it was a dark day for the film industry because they had to all show up in D.C. because they were getting in trouble for showing commercials during prime time for R-rated movies because uh, it was the family hour. One thing to point out though is both of these nurse trailers start out with shootings and they make them look like we're about to see an action film with a lot of gunplay and then it's nope the guy's got to go to the hospital to treat his gunshot wounds and that's where the nurses are. But I gotta say night call nurses is I think the best of the bunch. It's the political one you know it's got the right on soul brothers fighting the system it's got like uh, it's George Armitage directing oh, yeah. it, who did Miami Blues a vigilante force Grossy Point Blank. Um, and it's got my favorite thing besides the flasher, of course. <laughs> uh, what do these nurses have to put up with? But it's got the truck driver who takes so much speed, he hallucinates that his hands turn into disco ball gloves. Yeah. <laughs> this was actually, he wrote it, but Jonathan Kaplan directed it. Oh, that's right, that's right. Private Duty Nurses was on Duty. 
This trailer is amazing, and I love the fact that in the com the voiceover for it, they say, you'll never see this on television. <laughs> Guess again. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. <laughs> Have y'all seen this? Yes. It's, I really hate it. It's so sanctimonious. <laughs> We do like some of these films, just to point it out. We're going to get to the ones we like in and about, uh, about 30 seconds. Barry Levinson's first screen credit for uh, he co-wrote the script. Ah, okay. Yeah. And with Jeff Bagan from, uh, from Chicago. Now we're talking. Angie Dickinson, uh, William yeah. Shatner, Robbie Lee. Robbie Lee, Big Bad Mama. Yeah. And Dick Miller narrates this trailer. Ah, uh, yes. Dick Miller's so versatile. He did anything. <laughs> he did everything for Corman. <laughs> well, when this showed on television, uh, since so much had to be cut out of the film, uh, Joe Dante shot new scenes with Dick Miller's character. Oh, just for the TV version? Yeah, just for the TV version. Nice. Well, it's funny, on that 9-11 thing, when everyone got called into Congress, um, it was John McCain, who led the, who is the Federal Trade Commission head, and he was ticked because he asked everyone to show up and they didn't because he gave them like 48 hours notice. But the thing they were most angry about was that an 11-year-old child had gone in to see a press screening, or no, a test screening of The Fifth Element, which was PG-13. Everyone had to solemnly swear no more children in PG-13 test screening. We'll see how long that lasted. the real God Steel. Yeah, this almost plays it like it's a comedy. The well, way he narrates it. mostly it. is a comedy. And uh, this is not a comedy, at least intentionally. This is Lady Frankenstein. Um, people probably uh, know the trailer for this because of the line, who is this insatiable, who is this uh, beautiful creature who has an insatiable lust for the dead, which Rob Zombie used to introduce the Living Dead Girl song. Uh, but this was directed by Mel Wells, uh, who had a long career with Corman. He acted a whole bunch, uh, including playing Mr. Mushnick in Little Shop of Horrors. And now we have uh, a film originally called Subversion, Subversion of Japan. Yeah. Tidal Wave was its title in the U.S. with Lauren Green as Raymond Burr. With flags in the background, so exactly. you know it's classy. And I think they took something, they cut this down to like a 90-minute movie, sub-90-minute well, movie They hacked it to the pieces, US. yeah. And, yeah. and that doesn't even count the fact that there's all the Lauren Green stuff in there as well. So yeah. it's probably... We're probably getting about half of Submersion of Japan in the U.S. version. But the special effects were huge, and this was a huge hit in Japan, got remade, and was also a huge hit in Japan. It's based on a novel. I mean, this is like classic Japanese. And I should also point out, we saw that was rated PG. Uh, you're going to be seeing a surprising number of PG ratings in this uh, whole yeah. compilation. There are a lot of films you'll be very surprised were PG uh, when you see what they are. Yeah. This is another TV spot. I'm surprised it made it to the airwaves with... Uh, uh, humping a hot steel hog on a roaring rampage of revenge. <laughs> that, that's one of my favorite taglines ever. That was a classic. And uh, leading, a, leading a band of perverts or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. It starts out with her screaming, My guts are rotting with that truth! <laughs> this is uh, Barbara Peters, I think her second film. Her first one for Roger. Oh man, that's not a shovel. Women <laughs> <laughs> don't know how to use tools. I guess she's burying her an angel very, very slowly. Very slowly and efficiently. This is another job from Demi. Uh, he wrote, co wrote, and produced this uh, as a biker version of Rashomon. Sure. <laughs> No, so so school me professor, who's this actor who's so angry? Uh, it's Charles Deercock from uh, Police Woman. 
He's fantastic in this trailer, which is the only thing of his I've ever seen. Well, he's, he's also in the hot box. Yeah, and he's in Silent Night, Deadly Night. I believe he's the first killer Santa. Yeah. Um, before the, the kid uh, becomes the killer Santa, he's the one who kills his family. He's in Sting also. Right, yeah. Yeah, he's one of those guys who was all over both the big movies and small ones back in the day. we got Scott Glenn in this also, and uh, I think Gary Busey shows up, but they're not on the Are they both in Hex also? Yep. Yeah, so they, they re-teamed, I guess. I think a lot of these guys have the same agent. Like, you always see Gary Busey and Jeff Bridges in movies, like, around this time. Right. Like, they're in, like, three or four movies together. Oh, Star Wars. Oh, oh, my God. The, one of one of a few Star Wars knockoffs we're going to see here. Uh, this was originally... Uh, AIP had this, and then they let it go for some strange reason. Um, so it was picked up by New World. Uh, this movie has an amazing cast. Uh, it has Joe Spinell. It's probably the only movie where you'll see Joe Spinell, David Hasselhoff, Marja Gordner, Christopher Plummer. God knows what he's doing in here. Um, you know, and of course, Carolyn Monroe as Stella Star. Uh, an amazing cast in, in various ways, but definitely a camp classic. And uh, here's a movie that I guess tries to be a camp classic. Uh, this is Up for the Depths, which uh, Charles B. Griffith, who directed the film, calls Crap from the Dreck. Uh, I think he said it's his least favorite film he's ever done. Uh, it was originally, it, it's played here as a horror film. It was originally going to be a horror film, but it eventually wound up kind of being played as a comedy. Uh, and when you see The Shark, you understand why. Uh, also of note, it has an early, very early film appearance by R. Lee Ermey, uh, who had done Boys in Company C and Apocalypse Now at the time. And, uh, but was years away from breaking out in Full Metal Jacket. Uh, the last days of man on Earth. You know, I always feel like, suck it, Terminator. This is, <laughs> this is my apocalypse that I want. You know, it's like there's clowns in this, there's solarized lens flare, I mean, filters. <laughs> I mean, what more do you want? Has I anyone guess, seen this? I guess yeah. when it's the last days, everything comes out to Exactly. Play. How is it? It's pretty good. It's based on the first Jerry Cornelius. Oh, that's why it's so awesome. work though. And John Finch, right after, uh, right after Frenzy and Macbeth. I think this is Velvet Vampire. Velvet Vampire. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Stephanie Rothman. Stephanie Rothman. Is she still alive? Oh yeah, yeah. I saw her last year. She yeah, she's been doing Metrograph. She's been doing personal appearances lately. Yeah, she showed the student nurses at the Metrograph. Um, yeah, this was. Uh, she didn't want to do any more nurse movies. That's so a little. She did this for. Uh, she did this for Corman. And uh, this was put out, this is the early days of New World. Uh, I guess they weren't sure if, if some of these movies would be able to play on their own, so they put them together uh, with other films uh, as a program, a horror program. So this went out with Scream of the Demon Lover, uh, which is an Italian film. Uh, again, I, I first saw this late at night like on one of the New York stations. I think Oh, WOR was a great play. They they advertise everything on there. I don't think they had a standards and practices on that station, at least for the trailer, certainly. <laughs> Summer school teachers. Yeah, this is another Barbara Peters film. This is the second of the teacher films. Uh, well, there are only two, but... Uh, Nurses were out. Teachers right. were in. <laughs> Cor- yeah. Corman was going to find some mm-hmm. job. And I think after this came the flight attendant, the stewardess craze for him, right? Um, right, where they did Fly Me. Right, yeah. I think it was, both, it was around the same around time. Around the same time? Yeah. What jobs do women have that we want to make movies about? It's <laughs> Candace Rialson again. Uh, this is Student Teachers. Yeah. And there's Chuck Norris. Yeah. There is almost as much Chuck Norris in this trailer as there is in the actual movie. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a great story where apparently Chuck Norris, his whole family's in this. Like his kids, his wife, because... 
they were all part of his like teaching thing and they went they didn't know anything about the movie they agreed to do the scenes in it and they went to watch it you know like for the premiere and they were so disgusted by all the sex and nudity that he almost said gave up on acting right there after great and please we, we <laughs> there's a there's a better world out Film there history would be entirely different and here's Fly Me, which Fly we were just Me. talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, directed by uh, Sirio Santiago, the Filipino director, because a lot of this, I mean, this is set all over the world, but it's mostly the Philippines, and there's like literally 20 minutes of this 70-minute movie. is like travelogue footage. <laughs> um, but Sirio Santiago did um, Blood Fist 2050, KG2, Stripped of Freedom, and Cockfighter. <laughs> and now we're going for the ridiculous of the sublime here. Yeah. Although this is a movie, this is a real redheaded stepchild because no one liked this movie who worked on it. Corman hated it. Um, Monty Hellman talks about how much he hated it all the time. Back in, there was lots of interviews with him. The only person who liked this movie was Charles Williford, who was willing to go on the record. Um, and actually, Jonathan Rosenbaum, the critic, wrote a really nice review of this, and Charles Williford sent him a copy of his memoir as a gift, and his memoir is called The Unhemorrhoided, and it's all about Charles Williford's hemorrhoid operations. <laughs> now to jump in, this I, I remember this commercial from when I was growing up. I wanted to see this movie so badly based on this commercial, and I was only about seven or eight at the time, and I have a feeling if I had seen it back at the time, it would have freaked me the hell out, because this is really not a movie for kids. It's a very dense, uh, allegorical, sci-fi animated film uh, by a filmmaker named René Lalo, who uh, later had a film uh, that was called Gandahar, which came out in the U.S. in a very bowdlerized form, uh, obviously, because it was released by Harvey Weinstein uh, under the title Light Years, uh, though it did have a new script, uh, allegedly, by Isaac Asimov. But uh, th this is a really interesting, very dense film. Uh, if you can track it down, I don't know about its availability. This is also uh, one of the rare spots we are going to have here narrated by a woman. Yeah. There's very, only a handful of, of these that were narrated by women, so it also stands apart that way. And here we are with uh, Sweet Kill. Uh, this was the first film directed by Curtis Hansen, uh, who of course is now known as uh, the Oscar-nominated uh, co-writer-director of L.A. Confidential and many other great films. Uh, but he went through an exploitation period. Um, after this one, he directed a, a pretty much lost uh, kid kung fu movie called The Little Dragons. Mm -hmm. And he also did uh, one of the post-Porky's movies, Losing It, which has an amazing cast also. Tom Cruise, Shelley Long, John Stockwell, Jackie Earl Haley, and Joe Spinell. Uh, this one, uh, this is Tab Hunter. The, the trailer kind of touts this as the rebirth of Tab Hunter's career. But it never really went very far after this, uh, though he did do appearances in movies like Polyester. Yeah, um, um, hi. But that's, yeah, that's about it. It's not like a John Travolta-level resurrection. Uh, this was later reissued, uh, recut to look, or at least advertised, to look like a sex film under the title The Arousers, uh, much to Curtis Hansen's disappointment. I have to just throw in one quick thing about Top Fighter. Kayla Denise is writing a book about Top A whole oh, book great. about Top Fighter. Jesus. Excellent. Oh, this is The Brood, yeah. uh, the best of David Cronenberg's early works, I think, and, and I, I would say his best thing he did up until The Fly, at least. Um, you know, he'd already done They Came From Within and Rabbit, which had gotten a certain amount of attention. This one really takes his filmmaking to the next level. Uh, it's really quick, we have to move on from here, but uh, if you have not seen The Brood, if you're watching this, you probably have, but just in case you haven't, now this, Galaxy of Terror. <laughs> I used to go to movies with these guys and they would always be late. They would pick me up late and we'd get there late, we'd just get in as the trailers were ending. We got to Galaxy of Terror five minutes into the film and after it was over I was like, and I would always complain that they'd be late and they're like, we're never going to miss anything that important. And after this movie was over I said, that cool alien that's in the commercial, we missed that. 
not knowing that that alien is not in the film. He's cut in from, I believe, Battle Beyond the Stars, yeah. just to juice up the <laughs> yeah. commercial. So, but I didn't know that, of course, until I saw it uh, much later on on video. And, and you know, at the time, I didn't know that that was Corman's tactic to just cut in shots from other movies to make the commercials look a little interesting. Um, for all people who don't know what a piranha is, I, I, maybe they were obscure in 1978 when this came out. Um, another great uh, Roger Corman production from the late 70s, uh, Joe Dante's breakout film. Allegedly, this is what helped launch his career because Steven Spielberg considered this the best of the Jaws ripoffs. Uh, for a little while, Dante was going to direct uh, Jaws 3 People Nothing, uh, but he later, of course, went on to direct a segment of Twilight Zone, Gremlins, and so on from there. Uh, now we had Humanoids from the Deep. Yeah. This was one of those commercials when I was a kid, my mom saw this commercial and said, you're not seeing that movie. <laughs> you're not seeing a movie about monsters that want to mate with women. Uh, Barbara Peters also directed this, or at least about 90% of it, because uh, when she and Anne Turkel were on a promotional tour and they saw the film, they were horrified to see that explicit rape scenes had been added uh, without their involvement uh, to spice the film up. Uh, directed by either James Spartelotti or Jimmy Murakami, depending on which source you believe. Uh, more rubber monsters. This is Slithis. Slithis, as it repeatedly reminds you, this is Slithis. Everyone in this trailer has their hands in their pockets. Have y'all noticed that? <laughs> <laughs> They're making sure their money is still there. Um, when this movie was released, it, the release was accompanied by a Slithis survival kit, which was a little like four-page Xerox booklet that you get. Uh, when Roger Ebert went to review the film, he received his Slither survival kit and wrote, there are times when I think being a movie critic is not an appropriate occupation for an adult. Um, the movie was written and directed by Stephen Traxler, who uh, I don't know if he ever directed another film, but he went on to work on the uh, productions of bigger movies like Invasion USA and Waterworld. So he kind of got to move up from here, even if he didn't direct uh, much beyond this. Another PG, even though there's a yeah. couple of fairly gory monster attacks in it. And uh, we're going to see another rubber monster in just a moment. Uh, this is Zat. What is Zat? Zat is a very, very low-budget film made down in Florida uh, by a director named Don Barton. Uh, yeah, not, not the greatest monster suit in the world. Why did the tuna fish cross the road? They didn't. I think they died midway through or got turned into roadkill or something. Um, but uh, Don Barton actually became very active in the Florida film community. He did a lot to kind of support and, uh, and propagate filmmaking in Florida. Um, you know, better films than this, I think. Uh, I believe he predated uh, Fred Olin Ray and Ken Wiederhorn's work down there. Uh, this, this was made in the very early 70s. I've never actually seen it. Uh, clearly there's a lot of stock footage uh, bolstering the film. It's another uh, late night film I saw. Uh, and, and it, uh, there, there was an article about the making of this in a, a special Florida theme issue of American Cinematography. Oh, and this is uh, the Twilight People. <laughs> yeah. Philippines this, again, right? This yeah. I really dig. Eddie Romero directed. Um, yep. This is a, an unofficial adaptation of Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, this was originally going to be at New World Pictures, and then when Larry Wilner split from Corman and went off to form Dimension Films, he took this project with him, and it became either the first or second release uh, from Dimension. Uh, I love the Batman. When I was a yeah. kid, I thought the Batman was really cool. The Batman um, is really cool. Yeah, he remains really cool. And uh, also, Pam Greer is in here as Aisa the Panther Woman. And Charles McCauley, uh, who plays the Dr. Moreau character in this, the same year he played Dracula in Blackula. So he played two classic horror characters in the same year. Uh, this is another PG film, even though it's got uh, some fairly heavy-duty scenes in it. Uh, and now we move into a hard R um, in just a second. Here's Private Parts, uh, the first film from Paul Bartel, and right from the start you can see uh, in this film, 
he has a very uh, deep interest in strange and kinky behavior. Uh, that's uh, Lucille Benson, and I think it's her biggest uh, film role ever. Um, she was known for television, but she also had a few notable uh, supporting roles in film. I think she's the woman who operates the uh, Spider Museum in Duel, and she's the woman at the beginning of Halloween 2 who has her butcher knife stolen by Michael Myers. <clears throat> this film was originally written uh, to be shot in New York and produced by Leonard Kurtman, uh, who also did Carnival of Blood, which we'll see a little later on here. Uh, that didn't work out, but it was eventually picked up by Gene Corman, who at the time uh, had a deal with MGM, and it was made for them. But once the film was completed and the top brass at MGM saw this, they had no idea what they were looking at, how to market it, and it never really got the release it deserved. It later became a guilty pleasure on Sistel and Ebert's TV show. They really sang its praises there, uh, alongside films like Invasion of the B-Girls and High Risk, and it's since uh, developed a much-deserved cult following. And here we have Deranged, uh, which is one of several films based on the Ed Gein story. Um, it's not entirely true to what really happened. Um, among other things, uh, in Deranged, one of the big uh, plot points is that Ezra Cobb, who is the Gein stand-in, digs up his mother, uh, which Ed Gein did not do, but coincidentally, uh, in Psycho, which is also loosely based on Ed Gein, of course, uh, Norman Bates has a mother fixation as well. This movie was financed entirely by its producer, Tom Carr, who was a rock promoter at the time, and used his money to make this film. And he went out to look for some people who could make a horror film on a low budget, and he wound up with the team with Bob Clark, Alan Ormsby, and Jeff Gillen, uh, who had done Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things and Death Dream, uh, both of which I believe we're going to be getting to a little later. Uh, the movie was almost entirely cast out of Canada, but the role of uh, uh, Ezra Cobb was cast in New York. Roberts Blossom got the role, but Harvey Keitel was one of the actors who read for it. I would love to see a deranged with Harvey Keitel as Ezra Cobb. Um, also, uh, as I believe this commercial states based on a true story, this is The Toolbox Murders. Uh, not nearly as interesting a film as Deranged. Uh, there's actually not nearly as much mayhem in this movie as the trailer would make it out. Um, after the first two or three murders in the beginning, a lot of it has to do with the villain uh, keeping a teenage girl captive in his room. But uh, it was very blatantly inspired by Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, more, not power tools except for the drill, but uh, more tools being used for murder. Abby, yes. this is the black, well, not really black exploitation, but the black version of The Exorcist, released a year to the day after The Exorcist came out. And then Warner Brothers actually sued because it was so close to The Exorcist and won, and it was yanked from distribution, but it made like four or five million bucks at that point, so the producers didn't care. Yeah, and you still can't get a decent video version of this. Yeah, and it's uh, uh, the mother, instead of Barbara Hershey, you've got the mother is uh, Juanita Moore from Imitation of Life. And it's uh, William Marshall of Blackula playing the Max von Sydow role as the exorcist. And it was filmed in Louisville. Where's that? Louisville, Kentucky, yes. sir. Mm -hmm. Well, this is an early William Girdler film. This yeah. is one of the ones that kind of launched him into the higher levels of the exploitation field after some very low-budget films that he had done before this. And the interesting thing about having the possessed person be an adult, like over 21, is it's got so much sex in it. I mean, like, way more than The Exorcist. Uh, well, and you in couldn't fact, in that. I mean, right. Like, and, but in fact, the final exorcism takes place in a bar. That's how adult it is. <laughs> Uh, human Experiments, which is uh, being sold here as, as a horror film, but it's mostly, it's kind of a women in prison film also. It's about um, you know, women in prison and being experimented on by uh, an evil doctor. Uh, you saw the eyes of Jeffrey Lewis there a little while ago. And uh, this was also reissued, I believe in 81, as Beyond the Gate. Uh, and their lead is Linda Haynes, who is in Coffee and Rolling Thunder. And what do we have next? Folks at Red Wolf Inn, which is a mystery to me. 
just plain... Oh, you don't know this one? No, not at all. Well, you may know it under one of its many, many alternate titles. It was also called uh, Terror House, Terror at the Red Wolf Inn, Secrets Behind the Door, and probably lots of other titles, too. This is one of those ones that played around under lots and lots of different names. Uh, it was directed by a guy named Bud Townsend, who kind of had an interesting career. He did things as disparate as Nightmare and Wax, the X-rated Alice in Wonderland, and the Beach Girls. So now, or are we getting to eyeball? eyeball yeah. uh, beginning the Joseph Brenner portion of yep. the evening. Uh, one of a number of Italian uh, horror films that Joseph Brenner released uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. Uh, this movie had one of those wonderful original Italian titles that translates to Red Cat in a Glass Labyrinth. And uh, while the killer wears a red cape, I'm not sure where the glass labyrinth uh, comes in. This was directed by Umberto Lenzi, who um, directed a number of other uh, notable exploitation and uh, giallo films, including Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Spasmo, and a police thriller that was released by Joseph Brenner as Almost Human, trying to make it out to be a monster film, which it was not. Speaking of which, we now have Autopsy, in which autopsies really don't make... Uh, have too much to do with the storyline. Isn't this one about the sunspots from Italy? Yeah, yeah. this was yeah. Um, Mimsy Farmer's character works in a morgue, so I guess they can kind of justify that. But yeah, it's about sunspots leading to suicides. I believe sunspots is the literal translation yeah. of the Italian title. It's got a great opening 20 minutes and it gets a little sleepy. Yeah, and it's directed by Armando Crispino. Uh, here we have Shockwaves, the first film by Ken Wiederhorn who never really wanted to do horror, but that was the way you could uh, get into the film business back in the 70s, and uh, he did a pretty good job with this first one. One of the noticeable, notable things about Shockwaves, filmed in Florida, is almost all of it takes place in daylight. It's it's a rare daylight horror film, and it's actually very effective. These uh, Nazi aquatic zombies that you saw there are really, really cool. So, Rape Killer. Uh, this is another Joseph Brenner release. This is a Greek film. Uh, the title translates uh, Crime in Kavori. Uh, it uh, came out in 1976 and it played around mostly with the abductors, the second of the Sherry uh, Tafala ginger movies. Uh, came out on video as Death Kiss and it's now on DVD as The Wife. Uh, I think it's called The Wife Killer on DVD. Rape Killer, Wife Killer. Mm -hmm. So now we have a double feature of Suspiria and Eyeball, and I'm not sure, I would assume uh, Joseph Brenner was responsible yeah. for this. I'm not quite sure how he got the rights to Suspiria, because um, this was not too long after it had been released by 20th Century Fox under the international classics, uh, saying that with silent quotes around it. That's the company they invented to release Suspiria. Uh, but yeah, copyright international classics somehow uh, teamed up with Joseph Brenner and uh, re-release these two. Uh, one of these things is not like the other, as they say. We made a deal with United Artists a couple of years later for Drum and for Trackdown. Oh, right, I remember Drum played with Sacrifice, I think, yeah. the, the cannibal film. Uh, now we have uh, the great Mario Bava, The Evil Eye. Uh, this was Bava's last film in black and white, and it was his first giallo. Uh, he, laid, he, after this, did Blood and Black Lace in color. Uh, this is one of a number of films that uh, American International Pictures uh, altered when they picked it up and put a new score by Les Baxter onto it, uh, replacing the original scoring. Uh, but this is a, a very traditional... John uh, Saxon with Yeah, John Saxon. It's, it's got a pretty cool cast. Uh, it uh, follows the traditional Jalo story uh, of a visitor coming to Rome and stumbling into murder. In fact, John Saxon uh, played the other side of that story when he did Tenebrae with Dario Argento. Uh, this movie is also known as The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Uh, I think that's probably how a lot of people know it now, uh, because that's the title I believe it's known under, under all of its uh, DVD incarnations. Uh, but it's, it's a solid little film, and you can kind of see the beginnings of the style that Bava would refine uh, significantly in his later films. I don't know what you're trying 
And I think this trailer has my favorite tagline of the evening, which is, Cat got your tongue? It's still hungry. Oh, no, that's that, that's up next. Oh, that's up next, the black cat. That's the black cat, oh, the black geez, cat. yeah. yeah. We're, we're getting a little yeah. bit ahead. Getting this is hungry. a fairly long, I think this may be a trailer, actually, because yeah. it's, it's fairly long for a commercial. Um, though some of these commercials are a lot longer than we're used to these days. Do they even do TV commercials? I thought everything's advertised online now. I don't know. Um, well, it's kind of interesting you're saying that because it's funny. Until uh, until uh, Billy Jack came along, no one much was doing TV advertising. I think I read somewhere that most major studios before Billy Jack and then Jaws right afterwards, 2% of their advertising budget was TV. Like it was like nothing. Because they thought that the TV audience was completely not a movie-watching audience. Well, TV and movies were kind of the yeah. enemy for a while. Well, and people really felt like if they're watching TV, they will never go and see a movie. Like, it's a different species. This is a real I think this is a trailer. I don't think that's yeah. a commercial. But anyway, we move on now. Here's the black cat. Yes. Uh, this is a film that uh, Lucio Fulci did uh, after his zombie trilogy of Zombie, Gates of Hell, and The Beyond. And um, I, this does have the cat got your tongue. It's still hungry. Um, this is one of a number of films uh, taking off from the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Black Cat. Uh, Luigi Cozzi did one, and then Dario Argento did one as part of the anthology Two Evil Eyes. This one I always remember. Uh, when I saw it on TV, I was very disturbed by a scene where the cat somehow traps two teenage kids in a room and they wound up suffocating, lying on the floor with, like, foam coming out of their mouths. <laughs> when, when I was a kid, that was disturbing. Now, maybe not so much. And here's Dr. Butcher. Oh, my God, these offshore medical schools, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really? Well, you know, it's funny because they, somewhere in this commercial they say he loves New York, which is trying to make it seem like this is set in New York. We have a few of the establishing shots when... Almost all of it is set on this island. It, it's basically a kind of a semi-remake of Zombie, only with a much lower budget and not nearly as much craft. And then we get to, oh, the Orgy the of the Living feature. Dead. Which I'm so surprised not more people use this gimmick for their trailers, you know. I've gone crazy because I saw a movie. It's so good. It ensures that your trailer will be in trailer compilations for the rest <laughs> exactly. until eternity. I don't think people do compilations of current trailers because current trailers are not as interesting as the no. ones we got back then. Not at all. I mean, you know, who doesn't feel like this guy after watching? Exactly. Well, especially after these films. <laughs> Curse of the Living Dead and Fangs of the Living Dead, uh, both retitled, obviously, to cash in on the popularity of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, I must confess, I've not seen either one of them. Isn't it also orgy? It's a three. It's a triple bill. Yeah. Yeah. One of them was the murder clinic. One of them was Blanca. Oh, okay. Uh, and I haven't seen them under any of their titles. Oh, Revenge of the Living Dead. Okay. Oh, maybe. I think one of them was Ababa. So that was Orgy of the Living Dead, and then well, anyway, <coughs> we've moved on. Girl in Room Two A. Still Joseph Brenner. He hasn't moved on. Yeah, well, he, he was a big distributor of this kind of thing back at the time. This was an Italian, or it is an Italian film, uh, starring Ralph Malone from Nevada Smith, and there it is, The Cardinal, The Italian Job, and he's you know, pretty worldwide uh, popular actor. And now we come to probably uh, Brenner's most famous uh, commercial and trailer for Torso! 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 Yeah, another film that really like repeats the title over and over again to impress it upon your memory. Uh, this was directed by Sergio Martino, who is one of the great masters of the shallow form. He also did The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, which we're going to see soon under a different title. Uh, Case of the Scorpion's Tale, All the Colors of Darkness, 
and Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, which is one of my favorite titles. Uh, the trailer makes a big deal about how this is from Carlo Ponti, who brought you Dr. Zhivago. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, the films have absolutely nothing in common. Uh, this is another true story. Yeah. There's a lot of true stories in A lot in here. of true stories. Uh, the Last Survivor, a.k.a. Jungle Holocaust, The Last Cannibal World, Cannibal and Carnivorous. Uh, it was directed by uh, Roger Deodato. Uh, this was his first horror film, and it paved the way for him to do his notorious film, Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, and uh, as is kind of teased here, it, it, it begins that trend in the cannibal films of animal abuse, which is kind of a turnoff for me uh, in these cannibal films in general. You say that as if it's a turnoff for Chris and I. <laughs> I don't know. Now, some, you know. Some people don't seem to mind it. Um, now, I'm trying to remember. This is Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Yeah. This mask does not appear in the film itself, does it? Or no, it does. It does. It does? Okay. Yeah, early on. I've not seen this in a while. They used to play this film in, in repertory screenings. I must have seen it half a dozen times about ten years ago. Amazingly enough, rated PG. Yeah, we'll see it's, it's in a in another PG. But yeah. Um, yeah, this is not one of Dario Argento's more extreme films, but it has some very memorable set pieces, uh, particularly the ending, which we won't give away. But it has one of Dario Argento's most amazing you know, final set pieces yeah. ever. And from this trailer, you would not know that it's a movie about a rock drummer. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was the end of his Animal Trilogy, uh, which right. was begun with Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Cat and Nine Tails. We're going to be getting to uh, those a little later as well. Yep, rated PG somehow. I, know, I, don't know I, if the, I don't know if it was cut from the Italian original or not. Great poster, too. Yeah. One of those early 70s Paramount movies have wonderful posters. And now we have oh, The Tempter, the uh, one of the many, many Italian Exorcist ripoffs. Uh, by a director named Alberto De Martino, uh, who knew something about knockoffs of major films. He had previously directed a movie called Operation Kid Brother, which was a spy movie starring Neil Connery, uh, hence that title. Uh, Carla Gravino is the actress getting possessed here. Uh, she had actually won a number of international awards uh, before doing this. Uh, there's a, a story about the film. It was begun by The Telegraph in the UK saying, its first week in the US did better than Jaws. I'm assuming that Jaws was in its 20th or 21st week by the time the Tempter opened. Ergo, it did better than Jaws. Speaking of which, and speaking of Jaws, oh my god. The Ultimo Squalo! The movie Universal successfully sued to take out of theaters. You still cannot see it legally in the US to this day. Yeah, and from the producers who were also sued for bringing you Beyond the Door. Yes, same, same. <laughs> and I want to say, this says this is the most terrifying picture of 1982. 1982 is the year Grease 2 came out, so I think that takes that, that kills that argument right there. From yeah. Producer Sir Lou Grade of The Man Behind the Muppet Show. Mm -hmm. And can we just take a moment to say Vincent Canby, uh, have a moment? So he wrote of this movie, um, uh, Margot Hemingway's in it, Lee Majors, Karen Black, and Vincent Canby in The Times that wrote, Thinking does not come easily to Miss Hemingway, the actress, nor for that matter does closing her mouth. Her full upper lip has a way of getting hung up like a theater curtain on her front teeth. Now, Margot Hemingway was sexually abused, suffered from bulimia and epilepsy, lifelong depression, and killed herself. So I would just like to say, for the record, Vincent Canby. Andy's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just amazed that he took some of his reviews of movies like this were as long as that, you know, only as long as that thing. Of oh yeah. Anyway. He would. He was known to write like 50 words on a movie he especially didn't like. Yeah. The fact that he took so much time to just criticize insult her Margot Hemingway, who yeah. was at the time well known for being deeply troubled, still. Oh yeah, completely. Yeah. Uh, this Cat of Nine Tales, right? Yes, we're yes. back with Argento. This and this is GP. This is another uh, rather mildly. Um, rated film for Argento, which again, suggests perhaps it was edited. I, I didn't get a chance to research like whether these movies were released intact in the US. Uh, but this has a, a pretty solid cast. Carl Malden, James Franciscus. I don't know who Catherine Spock is, though. 
I, yeah. I'm not I'm not aware of anything she's done outside of this one. Uh, she's in Kick a Hard Ride. Okay. Also, yeah, she she was around at the time uh, doing some some things. And now, of course, we have the most famous commercial, one of the most famous yeah. commercials ever, really, for a horror film. Uh, of course, this does not appear in the film, but this scared the living hell out of a generation of uh, kids. And in fact, uh, someone recently, I can't remember who, on Facebook unearthed a letter to Box Office Magazine complaining about this commercial, saying how dare that they put these commercials on TV to terrify children. Uh, the other notable thing about this is that it repeats the poster tagline saying that the only thing more frightening than the last 12 minutes of this film are the first 92, which A, suggests that the movie gets less scary as it goes along, and B, misstates the running time, because the movie itself is only about 98 minutes, uh, not 104. Although I would suggest that it does get less scary as it goes along. Oh, well. The opening, <laughs> the opening of this movie that is, is amazing. True. They, they, that, that haunted me all my life, those eyes opening and the blackness. Yeah, well, the whole uh, that scene, the, the punchline to that, the really bloody yeah. stuff, was significantly cut for this, again, in quotes, international classics release. Uh, though there is a beautiful uh, restoration of this coming out this year from Synapse yeah. Films. Everyone check it out. It looks amazing. And I'm always going to say, if our director is concerned with design as Argento was, why do you let them do that goofy, Suspiria, pulsing title treatment. I don't know. Well, I, I, I'm not sure if that's in the original version. I think no, it's they, not in the original. It's just for the ads. Yeah, well, then I, I don't think he, he let them do anything. Mm, I, I don't think enough. he had any control over how that was sold. Um, now we're back Baron with Mario Bava, yeah. Baron Blood. Um, this is not actually one of Bava's more highly regarded films in the general scheme of things, though it was a big hit when it first came out. Uh, it's another film on which AIP replaced the music with a Les Baxter score. And... Um, this, it's funny because I have a friend who had never really seen Bava films and then recently the Quad Theater in New York showed a whole bunch of them, many of them in 35mm. Uh, he saw a half dozen of them and he actually said this was his least favorite film. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting because it's one of his best known films, even though it's one of his less regarded ones. Yeah, I kind of like it actually. It's, no, it's not bad, it's just not on the same no. level as, as some of the really great stylish ones that he did. So he liked that? He, he liked. Hatchet for a Honeymoon more than... I'm not sure if he saw Hatchet for a Honeymoon. They showed like 30 films or something, and he saw about six or seven of them. Here's another uh, Exorcist knockoff, The Night Child. Uh, That's Nicoletta Elmi, uh, the the little girl from any number of other Italian horror films. Uh, She was in Flesh for Frankenstein and Deep Red and uh, a whole bunch of others. Uh, Later, uh, when she got older, she's in Demons. And uh, this was directed by Massimo Dallamano. It was known on television as The Cursed Medallion. Uh, which is actually closer to the original title, which is The Bloody Medallion. Uh, now we have a double feature of Black Belly of the Tarantula and The Weekend Murders, of which Black Belly of the Tarantula is easily the better of the two films. It was uh, directed by Paola Cavara, who was one of the directors of Mondo Cane, which was the film that launched the entire Mondo movie uh, uh, wave in Europe at the time. And uh, there are this the movie itself does not have much to do with tarantulas, but... The uh, villain in it uh, poisons people and paralyzes them, much as the tarantula wasp paralyzes tarantulas by stinging them in their black belly, I guess. Uh, Also notable about Black Belly is that it has three uh, past or future Bond girls in the cast. Claudine Auger from Thunderball, Daniela Boucher from Casino Royale, and Barbara Bach from The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, the co-feature is The Weekend Murders, uh, directed by Michele Lupo. Uh, not nearly as good a film as Black Belly the Tarantula. Uh, this is also... Oh, there's a dummy death. Yeah. Good dummy death there. Giancarlo Giannini. Yeah. Uh, good cast in there, too. But uh, that's one of the trailers where I think the narration just tries way, way too hard. Man from Deep River. Yeah. Uh, the film that... Invented, like a killer fish. 
this is the film that invented the, the cannibal genre. It was the first one, uh, directed by Umberto Lenzi. Uh, the title, it was called Man from uh, Deep River to try to uh, cash in on The Man Called Horse, which had been a big uh, success at the time. This is the film that was AKA Sacrifice and later played on that double bill with Trump that we mentioned before. Uh, Ivan Rasimov, May May Lai, uh, appeared in a few cannibal films. Beyond the, the Door. Oh, yes. Yeah, the Exorcist knockoff to end all Exorcist knockoffs. That was also sued by Warner Brothers <laughs> and got pulled from distribution, but it made something like $15 million by the time hit. it was pulled. Yeah. Yeah. And the lawsuit, they kept it in theaters, actually, some in some regions while the lawsuit was going on and just minted money. This movie is like having the plot of The Exorcist told you by a really stoned person at a party. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got Beyond the Door 2. Actually a better film. Yeah, well, it's Mario Baba's shop, right? Yes, it, it retitled for, uh, for the U.S. release. Yeah. And Beyond the Door 3, I think, was a muck train. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that has nothing... That was one of the many Italian quote-unquote sequels that had absolutely... Well, this has no connection to the original either. They just no. uh, gave it... Film Ventures just gave it that title. Uh, but it's a really cool little film. A mock train? Um, oh, no, a mock train, train okay. sucks. Oh, I this like a mock train. Shock, shock beyond, slash Beyond the Door 2 is a really interesting movie. Uh, and it's on disc now. Uh, you can find it under its uh, true title. Here it is again on a double bill with the dark. Yeah. And in this trailer, but not the previous one, this one actually gives away the best, this moment right here. Love that. That's yeah. the best moment in the film, and this trailer gives it away. The Dark was originally going to be directed by, was one of several films at the time that was going to be directed by Toby Hooper, but he left and John Boncardo stepped in. It was also uh, originally supposed to be about uh, a voodoo revived corpse stalking Los Angeles and killing people, but while they were in either pre-production or very early stages of production, Star Wars came out and suddenly science fiction and aliens were a big deal. So they said, okay, instead of a walking corpse, let's make it an alien that's killing everybody. Uh, described by Variety as a werewolf in blue jeans with laser beams coming out of its eyes. Uh, if you can track down the novelization of The Dark, you can read the original uh, plotline of how it was supposed to play. Who wants to do that? Here's next, very, very briefly. That is The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward uh, from Sergio Martino. I have uh, to say, yes. a movie that's become my favorite Argento It's movie. way up there. I, yeah. I saw this movie as a teenager, and like many teenagers at the time, fell in love with Jennifer Connelly yeah. because of this film. I hated it until I saw it as an adult, you know? But it's like, it's really great. It's like one of the few movies he's made where he actually likes his female character. That's a yeah, it's a good point. And what's interesting though is it was heavily this version was heavily cut down from the original version phenomena yeah. and the bulk of it was cut out of the first half. So the pacing of the Creepers version is really off. It's yeah. got this very kind of rushed pacing in the beginning and then it kind of settles into the traditional Argento pacing in the second half. Uh, but there are people who actually really like the Creepers version too. Uh, now here's a, a really cool double bill, uh, Castle of Blood and Hercules in the Haunted World. Um, it's billed as Edgar Allan Poe's Castle of Blood, though it's not directly based on any of his stories. Edgar Allan Poe is a character in the film. Uh, one of the misleading things here is that um, I guess this trailer had to be in black and white because Castle of Blood is black and white, I believe. Hercules yeah, in the Haunted World is, is a gorgeous color yeah. film. Uh, I guess they figured it would be too distracting to jump from yeah. black and white to color in the same trailer. Um, Which is too bad because I think it's one of Mario Baba's best looking movies. It, it, it is a really beautiful, beautiful film, yeah. It's, uh, and what does Edgar Allan Poe have to do with anything? Well, like I said, he's a character in Castle oh. of Blood. I believe he's like in a pub somewhere. Um, a guy gets, it's one of those plots where a guy is dared to spend the night in the haunted house. Uh, oh, here's, my. here's, oh man, this, this is my childhood here. The Terror of Godzilla, which was 
uh, better known as Terror of Mechagodzilla, because right around the time it hit theaters as Terror of Godzilla, it was also hitting terror television as Terror of Mechagodzilla. Um, strangely enough, to get a G rating, this uh, movie was cut for the, the theatrical version, but it was shown almost uncut on TV. And uh, hang on just a second, rated G, and are we going to see the... We're not going to see the poster here, but the poster for this film actually showed the creatures from the previous film, Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster, a.k.a. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. It was very confusing. So this is 1975's Inframan, or the Super Inframan, which was... So Danny Lee, who most people know best, is the cop and the killer, and he plays cops in almost every Hong Kong movie. He was in three of Shaw Brothers' weirdest movies in the 70s because they were attempts to capitalize on other genres. So there's Mighty Peking Man. We'll see all three. Mighty yep. Peking Man, which is the kaiju movie, Inframan, which they want to do a Japanese Sentai film, and then Bruce Lee and I, which was their Bruce Poitation movie. And here's King Kong Escapes, which was uh, Toho's second Kong film after King Kong vs. Godzilla, uh, featuring another Doctor Who, not the Doctor Who, of course, from Britain, and it has one of the greatest uh, villainess names in film history, Madame Piranha, uh, who is played by Mi Hama from You Only Live Twice. This is uh, a, a pretty cheap-looking film, as you can see here. It's not a very convincing Kong. Uh, but it was a, a childhood staple. This movie used to be on television constantly, and of course, the idea of Kong fighting his mechanical double was really cool. This was years before Godzilla's mechanical double uh, hit the scene. Um, most of the voices in this film were dubbed by Paul Frees, uh, who you, you'll recognize, of course, as uh, Boris Badenoff, and, and every so often in one of the Japanese films he dubbed, Rodan was another, you can kind of hear a little of Boris Badenoff coming out in the voices. Well, he narrated some of the trailers on here. Yeah, he's, right? he did a lot of trailer Atlantic narration, too. Not yeah. Oh, that's a I good idea. idea. Beyond Atlantis. Ask for Babs. Yeah. Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, uh, which features the great tagline, Hedera lives in a negative world of death. <laughs> uh, but this movie is amazing and people there's haters who just say this is a cheesy campy Godzilla movie I actually love this movie and weirdly enough a lot of it takes place at night or in darkness which is really bizarre for a Godzilla movie well it's got a really kind of hallucinatory feel to yeah. some of it there's weird animated sequences this was kind of Toho's experimental period because they also did at the same time Godzilla's Revenge which a lot of people can't stand I've looked at it again recently in its original Japanese version, and it's really, if you look at it a certain way, it's a very interesting kind of meditation on Godzilla and his fans and what kaiju mean to the kids who watch and love them. Uh, unfortunately, the American version with its terrible dubbing makes it almost impossible to appreciate that way. This movie also has the, the famous theme song, Save the Earth. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's a literal translation of the Japanese song, though it uses the same melody to it. Uh, then we have Destroy All Monsters, yeah. the ultimate monster rally, which surprisingly was not a huge hit at the box office in Japan. Um, it was supposed to be kind of the be-all and end-all, the one that sent off the monster series. They were not planning to make any more films after this, uh, though of course they did. They continued this series for a number of films, and then there were two more series of Godzilla films after that, and certainly probably more to come. But yeah, it's it's a... It's actually kind of slow for about the first hour. It's kind of uneventful, but then when the Monster Alley stuff starts... Yeah, but that first hour is a lot to ask a little kid to sit through. We were, we were patient kids back then. Uh, yeah, we, so. we would sit through... And, you know, we saw them on TV, so there were commercials. Uh, this is Godzilla on Monster Island, uh, which most of it does not take place on Monster Island. It takes place around an amusement park uh, and features lots and lots of stock footage. Uh, this was the last film in which Haru Nakajima played Godzilla. He had played the character from the very first film onward. 
And then we've got, I think, coming up right after his message from space. Another which, Star Wars knockoff. Yeah. Okay, I have a funny story about this. Go I was watching it. this film when I was a kid with a bunch of people at a party, including several exchange students. You know, the exchange yeah. students who were at our high school at the time. Now, the villains in this movie are called the Gavanas. Uh, one of our exchange students was from Europe. I forget which country, but in that country, Gavana was slang for hard on. So every time they talked about the steel-skinned Gavanas, he would, <laughs> and he told that we would all crack up. Um, this is from Kinji Fukasaku, starring Sonny Chiba. Not the best film from either one of them, I would say. Uh, burying the lead, also starring Tetsura Tamba, playing the president of the universe. Oh, well, that too. Yeah. Tetsuro Tamba, who had three rules of making movies. Never watch your own movies, never turn down a role, and never memorize your lines. <laughs> so whenever you see him in that movie, he's always got his like cue cards like taped around the set. <laughs> now, these two movies, War of the Gargantuas and Monster Zero, uh, they were co-produced by Henry G. Saperstein, an American producer, and yet, strangely, they took a long time to get to American theaters. Monster Zero was released in Japan in 1965, but didn't make it, as you just saw, to the U.S. until 1970, five years later, after Destroy All Monsters, which takes place chronologically, you know, uh, it takes place chronologically before that film. War of the Gargantuas is uh, intended to be a sequel to Frankenstein Conquers the World, but for the American version, all references to Frankenstein were taken out, and it was kind of a standalone film about these two creatures uh, trashing Tokyo. Uh, that also features a, a memorably campy song, The Words Get Stuck in My Throat. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, Monsters Zero is, is a really fun film. What are the gargantuas is too? Here's the part two in the Danny Lee trilogy of Shaw Brothers Weird. This was their attempt to make a kaiju movie known as the Mighty Peking Man or except, Goliathon. Except the Mighty Peking Man does not appear in this trailer. At except all. in the poster art they keep showing us here. And what's funny and great is that the Mighty Peking Man effects were actually done by the dudes who went on to do the 90s Gamera movies. Um, a lot of those effects guys who worked on this were brought to Hong Kong went on to work on that. And the guy in the Mighty Peking Man suit was the brother of Yin Wu Ping, who became oh. internationally known as a martial arts choreographer. Yes. Oh, and now Green another slime. U.S. Japanese co-production, also with a memorable theme song, uh, Green Slime. Performed by the Green Slime. Yes. <laughs> also, also directed by Kenji Fukasaku yeah. of uh, Message from Space, and I think most Westerners know him from Battle Royale. Yeah, I was going to say, you'd never know looking at these films that he had. Um, you know, he also did a lot of crime films and things like that. Which, which are fantastic. Yeah, but you could never, I mean, looking at this, reconcile the fact that he would do a movie like Battle Royale much later yeah. in his Well, career. the Green Slime was an international co-production, right? It was like Germany, U.S., and, and Japan. Well, it's an unofficial follow-up to a series of sci-fi films that were uh, produced in Italy. Right. The Gamma 1. The Gamma 1 films, right, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole co a tangled production history there about how that came about. Well, that was the MGM connection, I think, because MGM had had uh, yeah. some success with Snow Devils and Wild Wild Planet. Right, and then when this film came out, uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey had come out the year before, and a lot of the reviews said, how could they put out a great sci-fi film like that and then release something like The Green Slime? <laughs> yes, Black oh, Magic. Yeah. Now we're getting into some good stuff From here. the director who brought us uh, The Mighty Peking Man, Ho Ming Hua. Oh, it's uh, Black Magic was the first Black Magic movie in Hong Kong, also from Shaw Brothers. And this kicked off a whole craze for Black Magic movies where basically Hong Kong people who were nice and clean and civilized would go to a foreign country like Malaysia and get a blood curse instead of diarrhea. <laughs> but, and, and really the message was leave Hong Kong and die. And they always had Canny, who was queen of the Black Magic movies in them. 
And oh, I'm this is a sick one. Yeah. Oh my god. This is Killer Snakes, directed Ugh. by also Shaw, directed by Kuei Chi Hung. And there's so many Kuei Chi Hung trailers in this, which is fantastic, because he was one of Shaw's, I think, most interesting directors. Uh, he was he was often paired to work with foreign directors at Shaw and co-productions because they thought his temperament was suited to dealing with foreigners. And this was one of his early movies. He wasn't considered an important director at Shaw, so he couldn't ever book studio time. So he wound up shooting a lot of this on location, which really helps a huge amount. Now, is Killer Snakes rated G or Master Killer? I can't imagine I don't know. either one of them. <laughs> Better known as 36 Chamber Shaolin, yep. uh, directed by Lau Kar Lung, and there's his blood brother, well, the bald guy, Gordon Liu, not his biological brother, just blood brother. Um, but this was the movie that sort of really, I think, really invented and revolutionized the training sequence that you see in like everything, Rocky movies, everything. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Lau Kar Lung really, this movie has a 50 minute long training sequence in the middle. It's like an hour, almost two hours long. And it really was, is just amazing. And released by World Northall, who released lots and lots yeah. and lots of martial arts films in the 70s and 80s. So this is Chinatown Kid from 77. That's Philip Coe, who plays Mad Dog and Hard Boiled in one of the five villains. But the star of this is Alexander Fusheng. So this was supposedly set in San Francisco about a young Hong Kong boy, Fusheng, who comes to San Francisco and it's just a den of iniquity and he has to fight to survive. But it's all shot on the Shaw lot. So it's like what people in production design there <laughs> thought San Francisco would look like. Um, but Fu Sheng, and because next up's Tattoo Connection and who cares, but I would say Fu Sheng is like, he was going to be the next big thing. I mean, he was, he was funny, he was good, he was fast, he was great at martial arts. His mentor was Lau Kar Lung. He was going to be Jackie Chan before Jackie Chan, and he died tragically in a really horrible car accident um, uh, one night when he was, I think, not even quite 30 years old. And it was a huge, huge, it was like James Dean dying. In the middle of uh, a diagram pole, pole fighter. Oh, which is one of the all-time great. That's yeah. my favorite Shaw Brothers. Eighth Diagram Pole Fighter. Not on this tape or disc, but see it. And then I just want to say about this. This is actually the third of Danny Lee's Shaw Brothers trilogy. This is Bruce Lee's last day or Bruce Lee and I. So Shaw had passed on signing Bruce Lee as an actor and then he became this huge star. So right after he died they decided how can we piss all over Bruce Lee's grave <laughs> and they hired Betty Ting Pei, the woman he was with who wasn't his wife when he died. Um, and they put her in this movie about Betty Ting Pei and basically it's an excuse for them to make a movie how Bruce Lee had lots of sex with women who weren't his wives and had a trampoline for a bed and was just a bad, violent, horrible person. But Danny Lee's in Killers on Wheels also. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But here's Bruce L.I. Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee, this is L.I. Yeah, that's Ho Chung Tao, who I think, I think he's the best of the Bruce Lee imitators. So I think he's better than Bruce Lee, Bruce Lai, Bruce Tai. Um, <laughs> only Bruce Lung is better than Bruce Lai Lee. In the comparative chart of Bruce's. Yeah, yeah of, of Bruce Knockoffs. <laughs> and then, yeah, take it, Chris, you know this. Uh, this is this. I think this was the one that introduced the next group of uh, yeah the Shaw Brothers uh, actors. Yeah, after Chang Che, because he had um he started out with Jimmy Wong Yu, and then he went to D Lung and David Chang, and they sort of moved on, and so then he went to the Venoms. Mm -hmm. To this group, yeah, and he did uh, five or six at least with them. Yeah. Oh, I think lots more than that. Yeah. Um, so this is Dynamo, which is directed by the guy who did Super Inframan just a couple of years before. <laughs> and it's another Bruce Lai movie. Um, and it weirdly enough has scenes like inserts from Bruce Lee and I just sort of stuck into it at random. 
Um, but the Yun clan did the action and they do a lot of the minor roles in sense of the Yun clan, like Mike said earlier, Yun Wu Ping, who did the Matrix choreography, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, all his brothers were really, really great stuntmen. And so they all do that and they're going to pop up a lot. Um, and this is, like we were just saying, yeah. Long and oh, David Chang. Uh, and what's weird about these guys is, so these guys were like his, Chang Che, the director's stars after Jimmy Wong Yu sort of like screwed off back to Taiwan and was like, to hell with you Shaw Brothers. Um, but these guys were cast always either as friends or rivals, but they were really almost like kind of a couple. They were like inseparable, like not in real life, but in the movies. And this real like brother to brother thing. Um, and they had just made Vengeance before this movie, which is their first collaboration. And right after this, they made Blood Brothers, which won a ton of awards, so it's a huge hit. So this is sort of the one in the middle. Uh, it's like, it's not the first one. It's not the third really important, like, award-winning one. It's the okay one in the middle. Um, Vengeance was a remake of uh, Point Blank. Oh, it was like, really? Yeah, it was yeah, based yeah. on uh, The Hunter, Richard Stark. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Um, I think they actually play brothers in that too. Yeah, they do. They do in Vengeance. Um, and there's a lot of stuff in these that's really innovative that Chang Che did. It's like for us, it's we, it's all just stuff we've seen on Black Belt Theater a million times. But the period he set it in for Vengeance, like no one had done before, that sort of early, early Republican period. Uh, most people did the distant past. Um, you know, the, the the casting of these two young guys who were enemies but become friends. It, it's just like. A lot of this stuff is so innovative within the context of the Hong Kong and the Shaw Brothers system. Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned the Black Bell Theater and then seeing these movies on TV and just looking at these commercials. I really don't remember seeing any of these on TV when I was younger, even though I saw a lot of the other yeah. exploitation stuff. Uh, I'm just wondering if maybe I was watching the wrong stuff. Well, no, because World Northall would pick up these packages of these, right, for Black, and then, you know, in the U.S., release them. And a lot of what they picked up were really cheap, independent Taiwanese productions. Um, which I'm just saying, I would never. I don't remember seeing commercial, even though these are yeah. so supposedly TV spots. I don't remember seeing TV spots on TV back in the day. For yeah, any of this kind of thing. So this is Kid with the Golden Arm, another Chang Che movie with the Venoms, um, and this was sort of towards the end. This was '79, which was when these movies were getting more and more comic booky. Um, there was a writer named Gu Long who had all these novels that were getting made into. Um, uh, movies and his style was very all about super weapons and people with like mystical techniques and these dark conspiracies and you know fighters with names like purple dragon and, and silver fox and so things were getting much more superhero-y and then this was when Choi Hark started directing too out of that whole tradition so it wasn't the wuxia stuff the early stuff like we just saw with um the T Lung and David Chang that's sort of realistic this is when it was getting much more super powered and just to say also, so this is Street Gangs of Hong Kong, which is actually The Delinquent, which is Kuei Chi Hung's first movie. Uh, it's credited to him and that's that's Wang Chung, for, of which the song is named. Um, but it's credited to him and Chang Che as co-directors, but Chang Che just put his name on it to reassure the bosses at Shaw that like Kuei Chi Hung knew what he was doing. Uh, and Kuei Chi Hung was amazing. I mean, this movie is really incredibly shot, really innovative. It's an angry young man in Hong Kong thing. But Kuei Chi Hung was a good, loyal, great Shaw Brothers director, and they treated him like garbage. And he finally, at the end of his career, after being very loyal to them, went and, and shot a movie for another studio. And he was allowed to do it as per his contract, but Shaw threw a fit. 
and basically penalized him and wanted him to apologize. And he was like, screw it. And he moved to California and opened a pizza restaurant. <laughs> and this is People Who Hate Tables. It's Jimmy Wong Yu in The Chinese Boxer, which was his movie he did before he said screw it and went to Taiwan. So he'd gotten famous right before in Chang Chi movie One Armed Swordsman. Um, and then they made all these movies together, Chang Che, Lau Kar Lung, uh, the action director, and um, Jimmy Wong Yu. And Jimmy Wong Yu wanted to write and direct this movie because he thought Kung Fu was going to be big next. And Shaw treated him like garbage, but he did it anyways for very little money. And it became a huge, huge hit. And Jimmy Wong Yu started working for other studios. Like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm a big star. And they wound up having a huge lawsuit. And the upshot of the lawsuit was Jimmy wasn't allowed to make movies in Hong Kong anymore. But he could go to Taiwan and do whatever he wanted. So he went there and got super rich. Here's a movie that was dubbed in the U.S. by James Hong. Oh, really? I did not know that, actually. He prepared the uh, the U.S. version of this, and one of his friends, Charles Napier, uh, did a voice. Uh, They did another one called uh, Blood on the Sun, like a year or two after Fearless Fighters. Uh, what, this is Godfathers and Godfathers yeah. and the only reason anyone knows this is because John Woo was like an assistant director on it the same as Fist of the Double K that's up next it's the only reason people know those two movies well these uh, these two and uh, there were two others uh, Thunderkick and the Hong Kong Connection all four of these were released by Canon yeah. in the mid 70s and they would frequently play all together as the first annual Chopsaki Festival, <laughs> all four of them. And all four of these uh, were uh, released uh, on Super 8. Oh, really? Uh, through Ken Films, yeah. And, and uh, Ken Films had contracts with AIP and uh, a couple of the major studios, Republic. Uh, but yeah, they, they, uh, they got a lot of play. Uh, Fist of the Double K, Godfathers of Hong Kong, and uh, the Thunderkick, yeah, the four of them. This is, one thing you notice in this is a lot of these things like the, the underground traps and the ropes and the whips and the little more acrobatic, that's Yun Wu Ping and the Yun clan, him and his brothers. That's sort of their style. Um, and that also has Jackie Chan in, in a big part. Dynasty, the oh, 3D yes. Taiwanese movie, which I think is one of the best 3D movies ever made. We just saw this in a 3D presentation not too long ago. And um, yeah, one, one thing that you notice about the current 3D is nothing comes off of the screen. But if you see a, like a good print of this that recaptures the process, You've got in the first, I think, twenty minutes. You have spears. They do it right into this. Yeah, every, every possible weapon comes right off the screen in your face, which it's is really, what you want to see. When exactly. You, see, you yeah. don't want to see depth of field. I mean, <laughs> certainly not in a martial arts film. Yeah, that was Michael Finley's process. That both uh, both Dynasty and Revenge of the Shogun Women used the process that Michael Finley had come up with. Oh, really? I didn't. Mm-hmm. Actually, when he died, he was uh, he died in a, a helicopter. Yeah, on top. Yeah, on, um, on top of the Pan Am yeah, building. Yeah. He was on his way to, I, I think he was uh, going to uh, sell the process to another country. Oh. I think, yeah, he's going to make, uh, he's, he's going to take a helicopter to one of the airports to fly overseas. And he had the camera with him, I think. And it got destroyed yeah. along with him. And uh, <laughs> so now a complete change of pace. Yeah. Sweetback's badass song. 1971, the first black exploitation movie? Yeah, and this was a uh, this is not a TV spot. Yeah, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is a full trailer. Uh, this was uh, this was released by Jerry Gross through his Cinemation Industries. Uh, the movie was made for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and one third of which came from Bill Cosby. Uh, 
And it have what, has one of the great provocative taglines, at least in the poster, it said, yeah. rated X by an all-white jury. Yeah, right? exactly. If that wasn't inflammatory, I don't know <laughs> No, what it's, it was. it's right at the end of this trailer, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, but this is one, interesting because this is, exploitation has been so devalued because it got so run into the ground and exploited. But this is a fantastic movie. I mean, I, I actually really love this movie a lot. It's very gritty. It's very street life. It's, I think it's phenomenal. Here's Lavelle Roby, who uh, is seen often these days in commercials. I see her on uh, health insurance commercials. Huh. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. I hope saying these same lines. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this premiered at the Grand Circus Theater in Detroit. On uh, March, I believe, March 31st, 1971, yeah, which uh, is a month before uh, anybody on the internet credits it as opening. I think usually it's April 23rd, which was the New York City date. Uh, but there was only one theater that, that was willing at the time to open this movie, uh, and that was the, the uh, Grand Circus. So here it comes, my. Greatest tagline ever? Mm -hmm. Second greatest tagline ever? If you see the movie Badass, uh, which was made by Melvin San Mario. There it is, yep. Yeah. You get to see uh, Screenshots uh, Vincent Schiavelli playing Jerry Gross, <laughs> T.K. Carter playing Bill Cosby. So it's some interesting casting. Yeah. This is Dynamite Brothers, which is called Stud Brown here. Uh, it's an Al Adamson movie, but. Alan Tang is in it, who is a Hong Kong star who did a lot of work in the U.S. I mean, he's filmed a couple, a bunch of movies over here. Big star who's really forgotten today. He never sort of, even though he did all these international movies, never broke out. But the amazing thing is Lam Ching Ying did the action in it. And he was later famous as playing the one eyebrowed priest who fights the hopping vampires. Yes. But he was also Bruce Lee's stunt double. So you see him throughout Enter the Dragon doubling for Bruce. That was funny, the scenes of the... The car crashing into the building. Yeah, on. that was all shot on the same lot that was uh, Mayberry. Oh, nice! <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be Watts. You know, they drive past the Mayberry Door. Church. Fist window. Uh, Candy Tangerine Man. Yeah. Matt Simber. Uh, starring John Daniels. This is my patented dance. That's my dance move I do right there, right? <laughs> Why don't you do that right now? This is uh, John Daniels here on the right. And, uh, he, he owns, I think he still owns, uh, the Maverick Splat nightclub in uh, Crenshaw in L.A., uh, which is a historical, uh, I think it was in the last five years it was given, um, you know, it's in the historical registry because of all the uh, famous R&B bands that played there or were discovered there. Uh, he was also a record producer. I think he, he uh, discovered a group called Love Machine. He was oh, producer. Love Machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is, I think, uh, Friday Foster? Friday Foster, yes. yeah, based on the comic strip by Jim Lawrence and Jorge Longwood. With uh, Eartha Kitt in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Season on that super yeah, Jim Lawrence wrote the James Bond comic strip for years. Now we're coming up to uh, one of the, the greatest black exploitation films ever, which was yeah. Blackula, which uh, I'm sure on the surface when it first came out sounded kind of like a ridiculous idea, but uh, they really pulled this off yeah. on a very low budget. Uh, William Marshall, who you see here as Blackula, gives a really commanding performance. And um, it's interesting because in some ways um, race is kind of uh, beside the point in this movie. You have a black and a white detective together and there's none of that kind of 
racial tension that you see in so many films of that type later on. Again, a PG. I don't know how they got away with a PG on this one. And I love in this t- trailer, they're like, uh, more horrifying than Dracula. And I'm like, racist. Just he's black, you know? <laughs> well, also because Dracula was, what, 40 years before yeah. that. So This Black Rudy is a documentary. Yeah. And like, I... It's an amazing, amazing thing. Yeah. Do you yes. know about it? Because I didn't never heard of it before. Yeah, it, this was a uh, this was a rodeo that was held over Labor Day weekend, 1971, uh, at the um, stadium that used to be on uh, Randall's Island, uh, Downing Stadium, just torn down uh, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, but. Yeah, it was a rodeo that was held. I think it was organized by a man named Bud Ramwell, I think. Uh, he was the president of the American Black Cowboy Association. And uh, he had tried to do something in Madison Square Garden you know, two or three years prior to this. And they just said, uh, after uh, he had the, the rodeo on Randall's Island, it was so successful that Madison Square Garden came to him and said, oh, you know, we'd like to do another one. Uh, Jeff Canoe actually directed the, uh, the movie Black Rodeo. He later did Revenge of the Nerds. And- oh, yeah, he was a huge that. trailer guy for many years. Yeah, yeah. We're just letting this one pass. On- <laughs> well, we have to leave one of, the, one of the words out. Well, this was a big hit. Uh, this was this was a major studio release from Paramount. Uh, Fred Williamson insisted on the title. <laughs> uh, Fred Williamson, you know, I gotta say, out of all the black exploitation guys, he's he's gotta be my favorite. Yeah. He's certainly his own favorite. Yeah, <laughs> but he was just—I thought he was the—he had the best screen presence. He was funny. Jim Brown took himself so seriously on screen. You know, he was so stiff. Mm-hmm. Uh, some interesting bad guys in this. You got John P. Ryan. Joe Santos, uh, and then uh, riding along with Fred Williamson in this, uh, D- Durville Martin, who kind of became his sidekick uh, in some other films, uh, as well as the, the two the two films that he did. He did, did a sequel to this one called uh, Soul. This is If He Hollers, Let Him Go, which was 1968, but it's based on a 1945 book by Chester Himes. Um, and the, the book is this sort of slice of life guy who works on the docks, black guy, he's got union problems, he's got all these tensions with these white women who are sort of like, he doesn't know if he should sleep with them or not. It's actually a really interesting book. And this is just a wrong man murder mystery that uses the same title. And Chester Himes, I think, is one of the great crime writers. I'd put him up there with with Hammett or Marlowe, and he got treated like dirt. Especially in LA, where famously Jack Warner, when he heard that Chester Himes had been hired as a screenwriter who was working on the lot, said, he would had him fired that day and said, "I don't want to, yeah, uh, on my lot." Wow. And I mean, and he wound up moving to Paris, um, mm-hmm. like a lot of black artists did. You know, where somewhere where they felt like they could live, sort of unharassed. But it was such a waste of great talent. I love this trailer. It's just like, like it's just. I think the time I see the black six waste 150 motorcycle dudes, and literally that's what the trailer is. <laughs> I love the motorcycles flying through the air in yeah. the background. These are all football players, too. Oh, are they really? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's like Lem Barney, uh, Mean Joe Green, Mercury Morris, and even like the leader of the, the bike gang, I think it was uh, Ben Davidson. Thor, I think, is his character's name. And now we're coming up to the Mac, which I'm sure a lot of people know from its appearance in True Romance. Sure. It's uh, Gary Oldman's favorite movie in that one. I think this movie is, uh, is, is uh, Max Julian and Richard Pryor on a lot of cocaine. <laughs> 
Well, this was this got a major re-release in the early '80s after Prior Star had ascended. I remember it got a pretty big reissue. What what year was it originally? '73, uh, okay. I believe, but it, you know, I never never stopped playing. Like AIP after Cinerama stopped putting out stuff, AIP took over and they released it right through until they became Filmways, and then it got picked up in the early '80s, like you said. And I never understood the popularity of this movie. It's fine, but like I'll I'll take Black Caesar over this any yeah. day. Like I just don't think it's that great. It's got some fun moments. I like the soundtrack. Soundtrack's great. Um, but it's like it's got those long scenes where they just let Richard Pryor ramble mm-hmm. for like, you know, I guess he's <laughs> doing stand-up, but it's really terrible. Three the hard way. Wow. There's Jim Brown. Uh, who had been uh, a major leading man in the 60s, in the early 70s, and then kind of segued into uh, these uh, so-called black exploitation movies with Slaughter. Uh, but leading up to it, he had been in, uh, well, he made his debut in Rio Conchos and uh, The Dirty Dozen right after that. Uh, here's Jay Robinson. Going to kill us all. And, and I gotta say, this this will feature the only shot of Jim Kelly ever kicking higher than someone's ankles. <laughs> I, I, Jim Kelly gets his reputation as a martial artist, and I'm like, the dude never can get his feet over someone's knees. You know, a, a guy who knew, uh, I know who's a, a really good martial artist told me that Jim Kelly's problem is his hips. Oh, there he, look, he had to sit on the car to kick those guys yeah. in the face. <laughs> they said he had like really narrow hips. Oh, so we couldn't yeah. get the torque in there for yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Gordon's oh, War. Gordon's War. Yeah, yeah. Ossie Davis's yeah. finest hour. Well, you know, uh, Ossie Davis actually uh, had a problem filming the violence and the action of this film. For some reason, uh, he couldn't do it. He, he and uh, Bruce Kessler was brought in to film all of the action and all of the violence. Really? In, in a couple of days. Yeah. And he was told by his agent that Ossie Davis had been fired. When he got to the set, Ossie Davis was there. And he watched the footage and he said, I don't understand what's going on here. Um, you know, you're, you're on schedule, you're on budget. He's still here. What's going on? And he was told that basically that Ossie Davis, you know, I guess, was planning uh, a pacifist. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but yeah, like all of this is Bruce Kessler. Which, you know, it's kind of interesting that a director's like, I'm just not good at that. You know, yeah, I can't I mean, do it. You know, Kessler had done Angels from Hell, so yeah. I guess, you know, he's, oh, you know. And, and he was able to, to design all of the action scenes. Black Gestapo, which is, I think, sort of like a black exploitation version of Vigilante Force. Uh, you know, the yeah. people who were hired to protect the community wind up ripping it off. Um, Bucktown also. That's yeah. a lot of Bucktown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's and there's two flavors of black Gestapo. There's the black uniform black Gestapo, and then they split into the tan uniform black Gestapo who fight each other. It's or terrible. ghetto warriors with yeah. black Gestapo in small print. Yeah. And this was all Lee Frost's home. They, they shot oh, a lot geez. of that in his backyard. <laughs> uh, here's Black Eye, which yeah. Fred Williamson. Uh, this was based on a novel called um, uh, Murder on the Wild Side uh, by a guy named Jeff Jacks, who is. A pseudonym. Nobody can figure out who it actually is. Uh, some people thought it was Lawrence Block. Uh, others think it's Black Irons. Uh, Teresa Graves is also in this. Friend of mine was killed. Christy Love. Uh, she was in two movies of Fred Williams. She's also in um, Batman Bolt. I love Fred Williamson's cane. That cane needs its own, like, it has its agent. <laughs> <laughs> 
things to get it. And before the danger was yeah, Richard over, Anderson was in this. Some of them. There, there he was, yeah. And uh, I think this is the same uh, bridge where there's there's a car chase in the outside. From Warner Brothers. With, uh, right where I think Roy Scheider is chasing or being chased by Jean-Louis Trintignant. I think the same bridge. They're doing the same jumps and everything. So this is Trick Baby by Iceberg Slim, who was a pimp who did some time, and he came out and became a novelist, which, which good novels. I don't love him. He's no Chester Hines, but his stuff is really has a vitality to it. This was the first movie made out of one of his novels, and Iceberg Slim worked for Holloway. Oh no, this is, yeah, Iceberg Slim worked for Holloway House, which was this publishing house run by two white guys who after the Watts riots were like, oh, we should start publishing things for black people. And they exploited the hell out of him. Uh, he was really, he died in absolute poverty and he made them millions. Case in point, the budget for this was $600,000. It made $11 million at the box office. And then this is Book of Numbers. Yeah, this is also based on the novel. Um, who by, I don't know. Robert Dean Farr, uh, who was uh, 50, this was his first book. He was a 52 year old waiter in Harlem. Uh, he went on to write two or three other novels that d didn't get as, uh, nearly as wide a release as, uh, as Book of Numbers. Come Back Charleston Blue, which is a sequel, right? Yeah. To Cotton Comes to Harlem? Yeah. And this is also, it's a chest, it's based on a Chester Himes novel called The Heat's On with the Coffinette and Gravedigger Jones uh, characters. This, this movie has literally not a single scene, incident, or character except for the two main ones from The Heat's On. The Heat's On is a really, actually kind of really fun book, but uh, this is just nothing to do with it. This has a ghost in it, doesn't it? If I remember? Uh, I don't remember that. Because this has a straight razor killer. Yeah, in the book, right? No, no, no. In the book, there's no straight razor killer. Well, I somebody thought... is killed with a razor. Though. Yeah, but yeah. they're killed with a razor by um, oh, a woman who's a pot dealer who runs a sham voodoo kind of ring, like a faith healing ring, but she deals pot and stuff and heroin. Um, yeah, these are. It's just radically different. Yeah, uh, Raymond St. Jacques, there were a couple of years there where he was uh, a leading man. Getting, like, chain, um, he did the one, uh, uh, the weird one with the brain transplant or something. Oh, the thing with two heads? No, no, no change of, not change of habit. But it was the same year <laughs> yeah. as change of something. Another movie I do not understand the popularity of. The soundtrack's amazing, yeah. but literally this trailer, minus a few like Curtis Mayfield performances, is basically the movie. And a lot of padding. I feel like the movie's just like all padding. Yeah. And a few of these scenes. It's like a music video yeah. showing off. <laughs> Although I, I really like Sheila Frazier. He's got Yeah. She's good. And he's not bad. It's just like this movie is just takes its sweet time doing not much at all. I guess the title and the soundtrack though, which is a phenomenal soundtrack. And then there's that uh, Shaft meets Superfly. <laughs> uh, the, the record by Dickie Goodman. Uh, oh, here's Watt Stacks. Great documentary. Yeah, yeah. Watt Stacks, rated R, restricted. I think it was this. Uh, oh, it's a very short trip. Yeah, it's done. <laughs> and we're out Shut of up, now. Chris. <laughs> well, you know, this and Darktown Strutters, both, both trailers use the dramatic song, which you see is what you get. And, you know, this is one of Harry's favorite movies, so I'm amazed this whole compilation is just three hours of this <laughs> over and over. Yeah. Now, who directed this one? This was, uh, was William Whitney. Yeah, was one, last movie. one of the, the old Hollywood.
Hollywood guys who found new work doing movies in this genre. Great serial director. He directed some of the best serials for Republic. Uh, Daredevils of the Red Circle. Yeah. And this, this has some real intentional comedy. In oh, yeah. It's, it's very a, wacky yeah. stuff. It's a completely ridiculous comic book movie. It's, a, it's fun. Uh, the music we're hearing uh, on this trailer is all from Savage, which was the Serio Santiago movie oh, yeah. prior yeah. to this. And also, the guy doing the voiceover of this is black, which is rare to have a voiceover artist doing uh, who is African. Do we know who he is? No, but I, he did the Savage one, too. I think. Yeah. The next up is one of my favorite movies, The Spook Who Sat By The Door, which is um, about uh, uh, the CIA has to get minorities in for equal opportunities. And um, the guy who comes in basically learns their techniques and then starts an armed revolution against the man. It was pulled from distribution, and the rumor is that it was the CIA had it pulled, but... It might not have been doing very well. We don't know. And it was shot in Gary, Indiana, although it's set in Chicago because Mayor Daley did not want it shot in Chicago. He thought it was incendiary. Um, and funnily enough, Indiana, the one state to ever be run by the Klan in its entirety in the 1940s. Yeah, I think Sam Greenlee, the author of the book, I think he's yeah. in the CIA. Did he really? I believe so. Yeah. Well, and I know that like there was like one negative left mm -hmm. that they found that they struck uh, the DVD and the vi uh, video from. This is a lost movie too. I mean, it lost in that uh, I think there's only one print in existence. Uh, our friend Ann Timpson. Oh yes. Uh, this was re-released as Special Agent, no Black Agent Lucky King. And it played into the 80s. I mean, I, I, I found it playing on a double bill of Jumpin' Jack Flash in 1986. I don't know where all those prints went to. That's some strange bad fellows. Yeah. And speaking of strange, uh, we have uh, Alabama's uh, Ghost, which was one of a couple of movies made by a man named Frederick Hobbs. And uh, he was actually uh, much more successful as a sculptor. Uh, he actually created mobile automobile art and later eco-friendly mm -hmm. art. And he actually got... Uh, quite a bit of attention for that. Uh, not so much attention for his films. Uh, the other one was God Monster of Indian Flats, which is uh, equally ridiculous as Alabama's Ghost. And one of his examples of mobile art is in that movie. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that Alabama drives around one of the cars. And so Mark of the Devil, yeah. this is notorious for A, being rated V for violence, and B, for giving out vomit bags to, um, to people in the theaters. There's replicas and original of those circulate around convention uh, merch tables to this day. Um, this has a, a pretty solid cast. There's Udo Kier there. Uh, Herbert Lom is in it. Uh, the cadaverous looking guy is Reggie Nalder. And um, this was directed by Michael Armstrong, uh, who wrote and uh, produced a number of other British horror films, uh, though apparently he clashed uh, during production with the producer, Adrian Hoven. Uh, Adrian Hoven kind of had it in his mind that he wanted to direct this, and uh, he apparently was kind of going behind Michael Armstrong's back, talking to the actors, like bringing new script pages to the set, etc. Oh, oh, boy. boy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, yeah. the, the trailer that does its best not to tell you the, that the movie is about giant killer bunny rabbits. That dares not speak their name. Exactly. You know, what I love about this movie is how chill everyone is in it. Do you remember the beginning when they find the corpse and someone's like, well, this could have been done by a vampire and people are like, mm, okay. And then they're like at the drive-in, they're like, giant killer rabbits are heading for the drive-in. We need you to flash your headlights. And people are like, cool, we'll do that. Exactly. <laughs> like, everyone in this town is so relaxed. 
I mean, this is an absurdly overqualified cast for a movie about giant bunny rabbits. The, yeah. the, the weird thing is the, it's based on a satirical novel called The Year of the Angry Rabbit, which was written by an Australian author named Russell Braddon. And it's a completely satirical thing about politics and genocide and all this kind of thing. Somehow it got transmogrified into this straightforward, really straightforward, generic movie about scientific experimentation. Enough about that. We're getting on to Race with the Devil, which is a great film. Another which was actually rated PG. I was going to say, another inexplicable PG, but this has literally everything. It's got Satanists, it's got car chases, it's got gunplay, it's got paranoia. It's and really one of the great Jack Starrett movies. Uh, Peter Fonda, Warren Oates, two perfectly cast guys. Yeah. Amazing car stunts, as you see here. Uh, this this movie has everything. If you have not seen this one, again, probably unlikely if you're watching this disc, but this is just great. Yeah, it's it's a really fun movie. Um, and this was '75, which was right in the middle of the end of the occult craze in America. The coming off the Exorcist, and sort of right before that, uh, Anton LaVey's Church of Satan, but before the Satanic Panic of '79. Yeah. So in the sweet spot, and it leads us into our Winnebago double feature. Exactly. With... Yes. <laughs> RV apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, the Hills Have Eyes. I saw this at a midnight show uh, the first time. I had not seen it on television or video or anything. It played a midnight show in the early 80s, and I saw it there. And man, this one freaked me the hell out, seeing this film in like a half-full theater at midnight. Um, obviously, uh, Wes Craven here following up Last House on the Left with another story of families in conflict. Uh, Michael Berryman in his kind of horror star-making role. Uh, not much more to say other than a classic and quite yeah. deservedly so. Uh, as is our next one, uh, Brian De Palma's Sisters. Uh, and this is one of a few trailers we have here that kind of is uh, a spoiler because right yeah. here we're talking about Siamese Twins, which is not brought up in the film until fairly late in the game. Uh, but I guess they kind of figured that was a, a good hook to sell it on. Uh, this was Brian De Palma's first thriller after doing uh, a few comedy films, and it introduces some of his uh, stylistic tricks like split-screen, etc., that would uh, come to define his uh, filmmaking later on. And this one still really works. It's, uh, yeah, it's to a, this day, it's a really brutal, shocking, scary film. What year is it? 73, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, because it's a little early for the whole medical thriller craze, you know? Yeah. Like, well, uh, again, that's, that's really kind of a small part of the film. That's yeah. kind of the exposition later. A lot of it is kind of a Hitchcockian murder mystery. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, about voyeurism, too. That voyeurism is a big part. But, of course, they had to sell the stake, and uh, that's what we got here. I like his murder a la mod which he had made a few years before. Oh, yeah. That's, but that didn't get a wide release. I've, I've never really seen good. that one. That's that's. I think that only just got unearthed for video uh, not too long ago. Yeah, it got ago. very small. Um, now we have Mark of the Devil 2. Uh, this is one of those trailers where they don't show you any footage as if they're embarrassed <laughs> by the film. Uh, this is the sequel. Uh, Adrian Hoven actually did get to direct this one. Um, or Mark of the Devil Part 2. So that's all there is to say about that one. <laughs> and then, uh, now speaking of giving away the endings... Um, as soon as this one. Oh yeah. Uh, also, speaking of overqualified cast. Well, I mean, this is basic. What we see here is the ending. I mean, the entire film of the Devil's Reign leads up to this ending where Ernest Borgnine gets horns without and makeup. The rain comes down and everybody melts, and <laughs> it's supposed to be the showstopper, but here the entire damn thing is being given away. Yeah. Uh, but, but really overqualified cast. Well, I, I kind of enjoy this one. No, it's, I like it, but the yeah. Well, Shatner had not had his career resurgence right. at this point, so 
Um, but yeah, th this is kind of a fun one, you know, even beyond the rain stuff, uh, there's some good stuff here. Um, and also some interesting directorial touches by Robert Fuse, who also did this movie, uh, Dr. Fibes or The Abominable Dr. Fibes. Uh, this is one of the first of several great Vincent Price revenge films in the early 70s where he used really baroque methods of murder to get rid of his enemies, like uh, covering their faces with syrup and feeding them to locusts, as you see here. Um, Fust had started out as a set designer, and uh, one of the things he worked on as both a set designer and a director was TV's The Avengers, and um, Dr. Fives has this really great kind of art deco design scheme to it. Um, this was followed by uh, Dr. Fives Rises Again. There were going to be more Fives films uh, at various times, but uh, oh, don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> but yeah, it was another one of those Vincent Price movies where he takes completely disproportionate revenge <laughs> against, a, <laughs> against a world that is moderately wronged him. Well, he's also trying to revive his, uh, right. his bride, Volnavia, played by Virginia North here, and it was Colin Monroe, I believe, in the sequel, right? So this is Shivers. They came from within. Um, and this, so, fun fact, the buildings these are in, this is Montreal, it's a place called Nuns Island, and I believe the buildings these are shot in, which are very cold and sterile and stark, are all built by Mies van der Rohe, who's the father of modernism in uh, architecture. You know, it's and, funny, I've, I've been to Montreal many, many times in the last 20 years. I have still yet to make a pilgrimage out there to see yeah. Starliner. Those Towers. buildings are still there. Yeah. I, I mean, they're famous. I've, I've never been. Um, also, early bladder effects work there by Joe yeah. Blasco. It's, I, I mean, I, I gotta say, I love this movie a lot. I know he's made more polished movies like The Brood, but there's something about just the raw J.G. Ballard feral hate in this movie. That well, it's funny because um, it, it, um, yeah, it is, it is a, a very accomplished film. He just like, did it on a very small budget. Yeah. But you can see here um, a lot of what was going to come in, in the later films with bigger budgets. That's AIP hiding behind. Yeah, you wonder why they had to take a, a pseudonym as such on this. Here's Dracula's dog. Um, the narration for this makes it sound like a caper film yeah. a la the Doberman gang, uh, which is kind of appropriate because uh, Frank Ray Perilli, who wrote this film, was a co-writer on the Doberman gang. Um, this is one of many films that he wrote for uh, producer Charles Band. He also wrote Laser Blast and um, uh, Mansion of the Doomed, which we'll see shortly. He was also the first writer on Alligator. And this was directed by Albert Band, who is Charles's father, and a, a veteran filmmaker by that time. Uh, here is Satan's Cheerleaders, and uh, as strange as it seems, this movie uh, indirectly led to the creation of a horror classic, because the script supervisor on this movie was a woman named Deborah Hill, uh, who later met up with John Carpenter, was producing Halloween, and said, hey, there's a really good DP on Satan's Cheerleaders who did a lot with a little, Dean Cundy, we should hire him. So from this movie was spawned uh, two of the main creatives on Halloween and the rest is history. Uh, this one, uh, it's a very tame R, I have to say. I'm kind of surprised that's not a PG yeah. as well. And The Exorcist. Yeah, and it's funny because as I recall watching this, there's no mention in this commercial of the book that it's based on. Yeah. You know, the best-selling novel, etc. Well, and not just best-selling, but like The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, they were the first two horror novels, and Thomas Tryon's the other, since 1940 that had been on the bestseller list. Mm -hmm. And it was actually the only other novel after this that hit the bestseller list until Stephen King in, the, uh, in 79 was Jaws and then The Island and the Deep, the Peter Benchley movies. But The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby really changed horror fiction permanently. Everything in horror fiction came from those two books and the other. Um, you know, it was it was seismic. Until Silence of the Lambs, almost nothing had that effect. The Exorcist, rated R. So, okay, and we're actually um, getting to another adaptation of uh, 
novel? Did yeah, it's a John Farris novel. Yeah. Um, this was uh, The Fury. It's by um, Brian De Palma, of course, post-Carrie. Um, here we go. Yep. Another story of uh, young people with bizarre psychic powers uh, following up Carrie, uh, again with a literary source. And uh, this is obviously a much bigger, more extravagant film. This was uh, De Palma graduating to big budgets. Carrie was actually done at a very, very small budget. But this one has, like, for example, this scene, this big spectacle here. Yeah. The Fury. And a great John Williams score, too. I, I think kind of an underrated score. It's not uh, discussed as yeah, much, no, it's but it's good. a really, really uh, good piece of music. And now we have... A movie, oh, yeah, yeah. a movie that they had to call Silent Night, Evil Night in America because they didn't want to call it Black Christmas because they thought they would, people would think it was a black exploitation movie. Well, this is one of a couple of films that Warner Brothers released a couple of times. It came yeah. out as Black Christmas, then as Silent Night, Evil Night. They... They kind of flip-flopped it. It's the same as It's Alive, which yeah. they released once and kind of buried and then came back with later on. It's a phenomenal movie, and there's actually a bit of TV trivia with this, which is that it was going to be Saturday Night at the Movies, which I think was ABC. Um, and before it could have its world television premiere, uh, Ted Bundy murdered uh, women in the Florida Chiamega sorority house. Uh, uh, and they pulled it from tra uh, broadcast because it was like a week later. A friend of mine who's a projectionist uh, at a theater in downtown Syracuse, uh, uh, Lowe's Theater, actually uh, was sent prints of this as Silent Night, Silent Night, Evil Night, and Black Christmas and didn't know and was running, ran one of them and then they ran the second one and he suddenly heard everybody in the audience screaming and, <laughs> and, and realized yeah, it must have been some sub-distributor who screwed up. Wow. Yeah. Hey, it's a good Christmas double feature, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Here's Schizoid, an early uh, Golan Globus canon film uh, directed by David Paulson who went on to do a lot of very high-profile television. Um, this is a, a movie that's centered around a therapy group conducted by Klaus Kinski, because of course you'd want him conducting your therapy. <laughs> uh, Christopher Lloyd, uh, pre-stardom, Donna Wilkes, pre-Jaws 2 and Angel. Uh, pretty good cast in a, a not very interesting film, sadly. Oh, yeah. Don't open the window, or is it the living dead of the Manchester Moor? Uh, either way, a really good yeah. uh, Spanish zombie film uh, by Jorge Grau. Uh, this was released by Hallmark, which liked the title, the word "don't" because they also released uh, "Don't Look in the Basement." Oh my God! And these I trailers, think, yeah. I think there was another "Don't" that they had too. And, yeah. Uh, this uses the "It's Only a Movie" thing. Uh, no, the next one actually. The next uh, one does. Yeah. Uses the "It's Only a Movie," which of course was popularized in the Last House on the Left promotion. It's here in uh, the House That Vanished, which is uh, by a Spanish director named Jose Larraz, who also did Vampires with a Y, a very well-known sexy vampire film. And this was written by Derek Ford, who wrote a number of British television shows and also wrote Don't Open Till Christmas, which was the post-Silent Night, Deadly Night film in which Santas are killed as opposed to being the killer. You know, they're, they're very bossy, these trailers. Children shouldn't play with dead things. Don't open the window. <laughs> There's a whole trend of don't movies. Yeah. Um, Oh, and here, uh, here's this one, is yeah. another uh, famous. Uh, this is the one this with movie the cop, which crazy. is so great. Someone didn't someone say Bob Clark directed this or something? Or this am I getting this completely wrong? This trailer? Yeah, or that he or Alan Ormsby or someone had something to do with this? Yeah, also was it this one or was it the origin? I think it may be this. You know, I, I didn't I didn't look this one up. I, I'm embarrassed to say, but I seem to recall hearing somebody from that whole contingent had something to do with the. Uh, these little framing segments here that we're seeing. Yeah. 
But uh, I just remember Mama was a, a Paul Leader film, also known as Poor Albert and Little Annie. And um, it was basically about a, a basically about a, a sex deviant who befriends a little girl. It's, it's really kind of an icky story. And uh, the little girl was played by Jerry Rachel, who later, later became known as Fake Jan when they revived the Brady Bunch in the 70s. Oh my god, Psychic Killer. Can I just tell you, so this is a movie about well, Timothy Hutton's dad who's falsely accused of murder and then he comes out of prison and murders everyone who falsely accused of murder, proving them right. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I already did the time, I might as well do the crime. Well, he's a psychic killer, which makes me think maybe they're more psychic than him. They knew he was yeah, going to murder them. <laughs> just keep him in prison. Now, speaking of um, uh, more movies about people with psychic powers, another post Carrie uh, yeah. film, tell, see even defining like telekinesis. Define, yeah. Well, like they did in, in Carrie too, the um, you know the dictionary scene in that. Uh, but this is the Medusa Touch, which was a higher you know on paper anyway a higher um, standard film. It was directed by Jack Gold, who was a veteran of British television. It was written by John Briley, who about uh, eight or nine years later won an Oscar for writing Gandhi. Uh, it was based on a novel by Peter Van Greenaway. Um, of course, Richard Burton, Lee Remick, and still not very good. But, you know, it's released in 78, the same year, I think, as The Fury. Yeah. And the same time. year as Patrick. Yeah, so it's Australia, all these, Patrick. Yeah. All these children of Carrie, because Carrie was late yeah. 76, so yeah, all this yeah. stuff kind of came out a year and a half later. Here is a Drive-In Massacre, misspelled. <laughs> Mass Acre. Yeah, Maz Aker, um, directed by Stu Seagal, who had done uh, lots of softcore and adult films under the pseudonym Godfrey Daniels, and then uh, somehow later became a major television executive producer. If you look up his credits on IMDb, he's got about 50 television production credits, kind of lower end stuff like Silk Stockings and shows like that. Um, but it shows that there is life after softcore and low budget horror films. Uh, this Thank one is God. notable for being co-written by George Buck Flower, uh, the great character actor from John Carpenter films and Back to the Future and lots and lots of other stuff. I love that title card. Yeah. <laughs> Drive-In Massacre has been deemed too misspelled for the average viewer. <laughs> Sorry, I'm an editor by trade. I can't help noticing things like that. Uh, oh yeah, here's Son of Blob, or Beware the Blob. It's actually called both of them in this trailer. And speaking of like movies like Night of the Lepus, like that trailer, which gives you no indication it's about killer rabbits, this gives you no indication of how painful it is to sit through this <laughs> it movie. Really, you know, this is one I saw as a kid and liked, and then I saw it again recently, and boy, it's slow moving. It's, it's really... I mean, didn't which Larry is a, Hagman direct it? Larry Hagman directed this in 1972, and then after he ascended to stardom in Dallas, and there was the whole famous Who Shot Jay thing it was reissued in theaters with the tagline the movie jr shot um, and it features lots of his actor friends many of whom very soon there's uh, marlene clark um, many of whom went on to tv stardom dick van patten uh, cindy williams before laverne and shirley uh, garrett graham shows up very briefly sid haig is in it uncredited i believe uh, jack h harris who had also released the original look at this that almost that shot almost makes it look like an interesting movie yeah i mean this again this is a trailer with all the good stuff yeah in it, but there's a lot of not so good stuff in there too there's funny stuff yeah, well, Shelley Berman as the as the barber is pretty funny. Gary Graham, in the, he's in a gorilla suit. Yeah, he's in yeah. the ape suit, right? But he's only in it for like a minute and a half, I think. <laughs> uh, Devil's Nightmare, which I don't know at all, actually. And you this is want another yeah. one I saw late at night. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, what I remember of it. I, I remember enjoying it. I think there's a, a bus crash uh, in this movie, which might be in the trailer. 
<laughs> I like that that's what stands out for you. Like, yeah. I'm, well, you know, when you watch these things at 3 in the morning, yeah. I think I was at college when I saw this. Killer gingers, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we know they're evil. Oh, my God. Oh, bus crash. There's the bus yeah. crash. Yeah. <laughs> Chris is cheering and dancing around the room. You can't see it. Yeah. I don't know what that claw is for. Yeah, hemisphere picture. Oh, is that their logo? Yeah. No. <laughs> It's a lobster claw, I don't know. Here, I'm speaking I'm, another movie about Vincent Price getting moderately wronged and murdering everyone. <laughs> this, this is my favorite of the whole Vincent Price yeah. revenge cycle. This has, it was described in, uh, I think in Malton's book, as a one-joke film, albeit a great joke. And it's a great premise for Price. He is a hammy Shakespearean actor who gets revenge on his critics. Which I think, you know, they, they could easily re-release this or remake it today. In fact, I think they tried to remake it at one point. It's uh, considering the divide between critics and their readers and, and uh, filmmakers these days. Well, it's been turned into a musical. musical. Yeah, that's right. Oh, it has, yeah. really. I didn't. And also, there on the left, in male drag, is Diana Rigg. Yeah. Um, oh, this has a Robert Morley, Terry yeah. Thomas. This has an amazing cast of British actors. Yeah, um, directed by Douglas Hickox, uh, father of Anthony Hickox, and uh, allegedly 15-year-old Anthony was a horror fan and convinced his father to do this film. Yeah. Oh my god, this trailer irritates me so much. Does anyone know anything about this movie? <laughs> this, this is the Spectre of Edgar Allan Poe. This is, you know, the guy who wrote, produced, and directed is this guy named Mohi Kwandor, who did some Mannix episodes and some Bonanza episodes, and he's one of those jerks who writes his own Wikipedia page. So he's, he's, he had a little bit of TV directing in the U.S., and he, he's one of those people who like brags about winning the jury prize at the Monaco Film Festival, but it's not the real one, it's like the alternate one. Um, and he self-publishes all these books and then talks about his award-winning books, but he never, it's just, this guy drives me nuts. After Lost in Translation came out, he made a movie called Lost in Chechnya, and like it won some minor award somewhere that he just bragged, look, there he is, jerk. I just, <laughs> Like, he so loves himself. And now we're going to get sued. Robert, Robert Walker Jr. we just saw in some blog. That's right, yeah. And uh, now we come to Equinox. Oh, yeah. Now, this is uh, one of a few films that Jack H. Harris took as a, a not-quite-feature-length film mm-hmm. and bolstered it up to feature-length. Uh, Schlock by John Landis was one, and um, Dark, Star, Dark Star was another. Yeah. And like this one, uh, or like Dark Star, this one was the beginning of a number of major effects people, like most of the major effects people of the 70s. People who worked on Star Wars and things like that worked on this. Um, Yeah, Dennis Muren and people like that. Unfortunately, all of the stuff in between the effects in this movie is really, really dull. Uh, I had not seen this for many years, knowing it by reputation. I finally saw it in 35, and my God, it's slow going. Yeah, the effect effect scenes are so charming and wonderful, and yeah. Yeah, but there's only about 20 minutes of them in in an 80 minute or so film. You got Herb Tarlick. WKRP. Though there, there, are, there is a school of thought that this movie... <laughs> okay, I guess. Yeah. Uh, there is a school of thought that this movie influenced The Evil Dead because it's a, a fairly uh, similar premise, but uh, Evil Dead is a much better film, I think. And this is, too. Tourist Trap, yeah. another inexplicable PG. Yeah. Um, there was Tanya Roberts, almost, almost topless. This has some really creepy stuff yeah. in it. Um, this is the first film directed by David Schmoller, who would go on to be well-known for doing Puppet Master and other films. Uh, kind of a, a Texas Chainsaw-esque film with a few of the same people involved, but all the stuff with the living dummies and all that, it's creepy stuff. Uh, an early Stephen King favorite, too. He uh, he spoke up for this one. Yeah. 
And this is from a re-release of Phantasm. Yeah, it's, uh, we're going to see the other trailer for this as well. Um, but yeah, this was back in the day when a movie would come out, and then a year or so later, it would just come back to theaters for people to be able to see it again, which is great. You know, well, VHS the days, wasn't. Yeah. The days before video, you could go and re-experience them on the big screen. Well, AFCO Embassy had a really prolonged release pattern for a lot of their films. Uh, like Superfaz, I think, was in theaters for like nine months, wow. ten months, like on its first go around. Yeah. And Paradise, not Paradise, there was another one that, uh, that, uh, that was the same way. This is the double feature, right? Uh, Curse of the Headless Horseman and Carnival of Blood? Yeah, yeah. Um, Curse of the Headless Horseman from John Kirkland and Carnival of Blood by uh, Leonard Kurtman. Uh, not to confuse the two. <laughs> uh, Curse of the Headless Horseman uh, stars Ultraviolet, who is part of the Andy Warhol stable. Um, but uh, Carnival of Blood is not the better film, but it's slightly more interesting, uh, simply because a lot of it was filmed on location at Coney Island, and you get to see a lot of what Coney Island looked like in the early 70s. And it also features uh, Burt Young. Uh, I forget, what, what's his, the name he appears under? It's not as Burt Young. No one tried hard for that title card. They were both under Curtin. Um, or he produced one he pr- I think he, uh, he, he produced uh, both. Yeah, uh, but uh, Headless Horse was directed by John Kirkland. For all I know, that may be a pseudonym. Uh, Toby Hooper, R.I.P. Oh, yeah. This is the uh, New Line reissue of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And um, this is uh, you know the re-release under which a lot of people saw it in the early 80s. I first saw it for the first time. Uh, I actually saw it on a double feature with Massacre at Central High. Uh, they attach that to this re-release when I first saw it. And I just want to say, in my mind, forever and ever, Toby Hooper directed Poltergeist. Okay. <laughs> That's a debate for another time. Um, Toby, may he rest in peace. Um, just had passed on last week when we're doing this commentary. Uh, this is The Night Visitor. Uh, a very This is a really misleading trailer. They're selling it as kind of a cheesy exploitation film, but, I mean, our cast includes Max von Sydow, Liv Ullman, Trevor Howard and uh, Per Osterson, who played the monster in a film called Terror of Frankenstein. Uh, not at all the kind of exploitation film they're selling it as here. Yeah, well, it's almost like a Bergman. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, and that was Lunatic. That was re-released. Yes, that's Lunatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the mystery newspaper ad I discovered many years ago. Um, so what's oh when the screaming stops? This is uh, AKA the Lorelei's Grasp, a monster movie made by Armando de Osorio, who was well known for doing the Blind Dead films. This was originally released as in the U.S. as the Swingin' Monster. Really? With, uh, Jesus. With an X rating, which uh, was an actual X rating. By the MPAA. I'd never heard that. Yeah, That's they, crazy. They had to cut it for the When the Screaming Stops release. Uh, X, of course, for violence, not for right. sexual content. Oh, God. End of the world. world. I, I remember this. There was actually a shorter teaser of this, and all it is in a, a shorter TV spot, and all it is is a shot of the earth, and it just says, You have nothing to look forward to except <laughs> end of the world as the earth explodes. <laughs> Um, well, you're going to see it here at the very end. Look, spoiler alert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I like the glitter in the Earth's core. That's beautiful. Yeah, Earth is a geode, apparently. Yeah, we're just all a beautiful the sparkly pinata. stuff in the beginning. <laughs> oh, and here is Attack the of the Killer, Killer Tomatoes. tomatoes. Attack. One thing I find rather a, a little amusing here is right at the moment that the narrator says hilarious, it's over a shot of a helicopter crash. That helicopter crash was real. It was not supposed to crash. It was supposed to land in the background. And apparently there's a, here it is, hilarious, as someone almost dies. Uh, apparently there was a wind shear or something. The pilot lost control and crashed on camera. Uh, fortunately, no, no one died. Everyone got out of the chopper before it started burning. 
uh, but you wouldn't know that from looking at it. Uh, oh, here's Vampires uh, by Jose Loraz again. Um, this was shot uh, at Oakley Court, which is well known uh, from both Hammer Films and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And this is a really good, um, you know, bloody, sexy, uh, really fun exploitation film. Uh, it was released by a company called Canvas Films, uh, owned by Lee Hessel, who you saw there. Um, he al they also released uh, The Crazies and um, There's Always Vanilla. The uh, two George Romero films from uh, Post Night of the Living Dead. And uh, it stars Anolka, who was a Playman of the Month, and Marianne Morris, who was also uh, a model in nude magazines. And uh, they're pretty hot in this one. It keeps referring to them as very unnatural ladies throughout. And I can't tell if that's an anti lesbian thing or an anti vampire thing, you know? <laughs> I, exactly. <laughs> like, Which one makes them unnatural? Who are they discriminating against in this trailer? <laughs> we'll say it's vampires just to avoid it. Yeah, exactly. This was released the Ilsa movies too. Oh right, yes. Yeah, they weren't around for very long, I don't think. Cry Uncle. I can't imagine that was a TV spot, is it? It's super sexy. Yeah, this this is fairly long. It might be a, a trailer actually. Yeah. Yeah, this is a little heavier than uh, adult, adult terror. <laughs> Did Canvas make anything but adult movies? Um, I don't think they ever had the children's well, movies. Branch. No. Walter Reed Organization. This is the Night of the Living Dead trailer, but they were they uh, Reed owned a bunch of movie theaters in New York and New Jersey, and then got into distribution and wound up dying in a skiing accident in like '73 or something. But this is the biggest hit they ever had when they uh, released it. But I don't know when they did. Was it a re-release? I assume. I think it was. Well, no, I think it was initially. Yeah. 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 Oh, it was initially yeah. a Reed Organization yep. release. Yeah. Got it. And now the Lincoln Center Theater yeah. is named after the dude. So I think they released Dutchman, they, which was only an hour long. So they, they definitely did some experimental things. Yeah. So we can blame them for the whole um, uh, supposedly public domain thing where they forgot to put the copyright notice yeah. when right. they changed the title. Thanks, it's their fault, damn it. <laughs> See what you did? He was, I mean, he was busy hitting a tree on a downhill slope. <laughs> oh, come on. I was thinking earlier um, about the, that double feature that we had of, uh, was it Castle of Blood and... and uh, On Hercules and the Haunted World. World. A lot of people had black and white TVs, because that was in the 60s. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I mean, that, that's one reason why you know, I'm sure a lot of people didn't even notice that trailer. That's true, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That TV spot, right? I, I we we only had black and white TVs in my house till like the early eighties, I think. I yeah, was, I was but like the black and underprivileged white. that way. But also, families that had a color TV in the living room, the kid or someone or the playroom would have a black and white mm -hmm. smaller set. Well, I had a little black and white set in my room, but the mate. In fact, my grandparents had a color TV before we did. Oh yeah. So we would go to my grandparents' place when something like Yellow Submarine or The Wizard of Oz was on TV, so we could see it in color. My grandparents got cable before we did. Wow. We weren't even allowed to get cable. We we so. got. Cable pretty early though I always remember the first time I discovered cables when we went to Nantucket Island it was in our little bed and breakfast they were like the first people to get cable because that was the only way to get TV out to Nantucket Island uh, anyway digressing dawn. now yeah. dawn of the dead um, yeah what else do you say I mean I saw this way too young I think I saw this when I was like 11 or 12 <laughs> or something it has scarred me for life well I saw this when I was about Probably um, 14, 15. I mean, but too young to get in, basically. I, I saw quite a few unrated movies uh, before I was allowed to, you know, or officially allowed to. Yeah. But I don't, you know, they didn't care, I, as long as you were paying for your ticket. I don't think a lot of theaters didn't mind. Um, you know, I was seeing R-rated movies without a parent or adult guardian starting at around 14. 
So yeah, no, I I saw it on VHS. Oh wow! In like the early '80s, for the first time. Yeah, they they this was another one they re-released quite a bit. So yeah, I got to see it on a on a follow-up. I guess in '81 or something, '81 or '82. I know they put it out with Mother's Day, and then they did put it out with the Crazies also, right? Well, they they put it out with Creepshow, I think, and they cut it for an R rating. Right. Boy, did people get pissed about that. So this yeah. TV spot really changed everything. This was one of the first studio movies after uh, Billy Jack made all that money doing the TV stuff where they spent I think it was like $700,000 of the advertising budget just on TV ads for Jaws and people saw how much money Jaws made and after this everyone's like TV advertising budgets went super high yeah it was also uh, one of the bigger one of the first big summer releases yeah Roger Castell did the soft so the hardcover book cover is looks like the most boring thing you've ever seen oh, yes. and Castell did that uh, paperback and they licensed it to do the movie poster a yeah, quick plug for the whole story of Jaws and its promotion check out uh, The Shark is Still Working the documentary yeah. on the Jaws Blu-ray which is excellent The Sentinel uh, a great Michael Winner travesty I mean it, it's really fun but my god it's so sleazy and overwrought well you know and this was part of this whole boom after the exorcist of Catholic exploitation horror novels this was the first one to make oh, a ton right, of money oh right by Jeffrey Convitz who was a Jewish talent agent who wrote this <laughs> Catholic horror novel oh and here's Carrie which yeah. we were talking about before and this movie you know King was not selling a bunch of copies of his books. This movie really pushed him over the top and gave them that initial surge. I mean, he was doing well in paperback, but this really put him on the radar and Brian De Palma. Yeah, I mean, this, this is ground zero for both of them. I think this movie was made for only like a million and a half or something. And then yeah. it was a rare horror film. It got two Best Actress and Supporting Actress nominations for SpaceX and Piper Laurie. And uh, it really changed everything for both of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And now from the sublime to the ridiculous. I love when... It's Donald Pleasence in this, right? Yeah. Where he's like, you may think you're normal, but you're all the product of mutations. <laughs> Amazingly, this was directed by Jack Cardiff, uh, who was an Oscar-winning cinematographer. He won the Oscar for Black Narcissus. He shot you know, The African Queen and all kinds of other great stuff. Um, yeah, well, he worked with uh, Michael Powell a lot, uh, directed Sons and Lovers, got an Oscar nomination for that. How he wound up on this, I have no idea. Uh, and the makeup on these, these ridiculous creature makeup is by Charles Parker, who had done makeup on uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Ben-Hur. Uh, he did makeup effects on Star Wars, and this is a real anomaly in his career. There's Harry Nilsson, Ringo Starr. Speaking of anomalies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> From the man who brought you the theme to Midnight Cowboy and the man who brought you help. One of the interesting things is that this movie and uh, also an anthology called Tales of Witness Madness were written by an actress named Jennifer Jane under the pseudonym of Jay Fairbank. Uh, she did a ton of movies in the 60s and 70s. Those are the only two movies she wrote and both under a pseudonym. Uh, and speaking of variations on Dracula, here's Dracula Sucks. Oh boy. <laughs> this is really... This is one of uh, several uh, Dracula porno films that came out. Is that Reggie Nalder again? Yeah. yeah. It sure is. Uh, Reggie Nalder, by the way, speaking of vampires, is probably best known for playing the vampire in Salem's Lot, the Toby Hooper TV version. Oh, he plays Straker? Uh, yeah. Ah. The, uh, the kind of Nosferatu yeah, yeah, yeah. Vampire. I didn't know that at all, actually. Yeah, so... Um, Another trailer telling us what not to do. Mm -hmm. Children should <laughs> not play with dead things. <laughs> Such a weird movie, and so dirty and gross and great. Um, but yeah, the, the whole start of uh, Alan Ormsby's horror career, um, he went on uh, to do Death Dream, and then 
uh, deranged, and he eventually wrote the remake of Cat People and kind of incongruously My Bodyguard, so he had kind of an interesting career. <laughs> Night of the Bloody Apes, uh, one of the Rene Cardona movies, yeah. and a remake of a previous film called Doctor of Doom. And yeah. this is a really gory, <laughs> this is really gory for a uh, TV trailer. Yeah, this is like, another one I have a feeling might be a, a trailer or a condensed trailer, because yeah, this is pretty nasty. I mean, I would be traumatized if I saw this on TV. I was a delicate child. Was it, was it this one or Doctor of Doom that was also called Gomar the Human Gorilla? One of them had that as an alternate title, which is a, a really great alternate title. Blood Orgy of the She-Devils! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, they look like they're having fun. The clothed orgy of the she-devils, at least. <laughs> With fine special effects, yeah. There's not much to say about this, unfortunately. At least for me. You know, if you don't have anything nice to say... Don't say anything at all. Exactly. Because, we're, we're, again, we're going to go from the ridiculous to the sublime. Yeah. The amazing The Devils. Uh, from back in the day when a major studio film could get an X rating and be advertised on television and play theaters and nobody minded. Well, maybe a few people did. Set designed by the great Derek Jarman, who would go on to have a distinguished career as a film director. Yeah, this, they've been screening this a lot lately, uh, and this is just great. It holds up amazingly well, and the themes of religious hypocrisy are only more uh, applicable yeah. today than ever. And it's great. This TV trailer keeps saying, you know, this The Devils is not a film for everyone. Like, I love that their advertising campaign is, you may not be hip enough to come see this movie. Just stay home square. Well, these days, no one would dare to say anything that would suggest people should not yeah, see exactly. the film. Yeah, you know? exactly. These days, they're terrified of say, making it seem like anything but palatable for this X-rated TV commercial on television. Exactly. No, I love the fact that their campaign is, stay away, loser. <laughs> Kinney Company. And going also to the sublime, I think it's... Yeah, uh, and here's another one telling you what not to do. Yeah, do totally. Now. Now. <laughs> Though this is another one that's like... They, a they're really trailer. They're giving this a hard sell as like some kind of a, a, a hardcore horror film. And of course, it is very different. What yeah. I love is that it says in the 50s it was Psycho when Psycho came out in 1960. Yeah. But okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, not, not much more to say. Don't Look Now is a classic, deservedly so. And this is Lord Shango, which came out right at the end, sort of, of the black exploitation early boom. It's like 75 or something, but filmed in my home state of South Carolina. And it's actually kind of a really interesting movie about um, uh, a woman who sort of feels cast out by her church and turns to Yoruban religion and, and hoodoo. And it goes wrong, of course. Um, very meditative. It's a little, kind of like a lesser version of Ganja and Hess. Um, but it was re-released as Soulmates of Shango and Flopped. It was re-released as Color of Love and Flopped. It oh, just... and um, now we're in A Name for Evil, and I want to say, if that house looks familiar, it's because it was used as the key advertising image in the posters and newspaper ads for The Last House on Dead End Street. I don't know how oh, it wound yeah. up in there. Uh, this movie was originally intended to be, it was filmed under the title The Grove, and it was supposed to be a paranormal thriller with a satiric undercurrent. But the production ran out of money, an MGM deal fell through. It was acquired by Bob Guccione, who was trying to get Penthouse into the film business, and he put some topless women and cut it all up and, and made a shambles of it. This movie, Homebodies, movie. this used to play on television late at night. I love this film. This movie desperately deserves to be rediscovered. Not on VHS. Any, I mean, I don't it, think it was, it was ever on VHS. I was it? VHS. It's yeah. never been on disc. Yeah. Um, a print of it has been going around. Has Somebody it? put this movie out on disc. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's really good. So good. It, it Basically, senior citizens kill people to preserve their, their home in the Cincinnati. 
It sounds silly. It's great black comic in the Hitchcock vein. Love it. Another bossy trailer. Yeah, and here's, you know, keep oh, repeating last house the last house thing boss. again. Yeah. Hallmark got a lot of mileage out of this one. Uh, Don't Look in the Basement. Uh, the original, well, maybe not the original, but one of the seminal lunatics take over the Asylum films. Don't do this. Don't do that. Exactly. Yeah, this this has been, uh, though it, it's... I think it was shot as the forgotten. Yeah, yeah. And then the, they decided that wasn't going to sell a movie like this. Another well, Bob so. Clark film, Death Dream, a.k.a. Dead of Night. Yeah. Th- was this it shot a- in Canada? Um, I, to be honest, I can't recall. Yes. Something tells me it was shot in Florida, but I okay. can't say for sure. Either way, a really good film. And PG, again. And one of the how first... How that happened, I don't I think know. one of the, the first Vietnam horror movie? Yeah, because it was in 72, and it was one of the first to deal with... You know, what might happen if someone came back and wasn't quite himself. This is a weird one. Marcel Marceau and William Castle in, you know, working on the film. William Castle's last movie. Yeah, well, no, Bug came after this, I think. I think this is his last director. His last Last one was a director, director. yeah. 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 He was probably Um, bitten by a mine and got poisoned. (laughs) Another great Paramount poster, too. It's actually not a bad movie, it's just weird. Because they they put out Let's Scare Jessica to death, I think, around the same time. Another very weird but very interesting film. Another Larry Bishop Biker. Also, right? Larry Bishop, I think, was the leader. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, he was always cast as a biker. So here is um, two uh, William Girdler animal attack movies in a row. Yeah. And it's funny, so this is Grizzly from 76 and Day of the Animals from 77. Actually, Rattlers is going to be right after this from yeah. 76. This all came off the wake of, in 1974, Jaws and the Rats by James Herbert were huge, huge hits at the same time. Uh, one in the UK and one here. And that really sparked a huge animal attacks craze. Well, Day of the Animals, this movie is now a camp classic. You have yeah. not lived until you've seen Leslie Nielsen wrestle a bear in this film. Well, and also called Christopher George Hot Shot. About yeah, yeah. 5,000 times. <laughs> and he also looks at the, the, the sexy young girl and says, I'm a man who take what I want, and I want that. <laughs> the other notable thing, talking of timeliness, this was made in 1970. Leslie Nielsen's name misspelled. Um, <laughs> this is all based on the fear back at the time that aerosols in you know aerosol cans were going to deplete. Yeah, yeah they were yeah. going to deplete the ozone layer, and the sunlight would come in and cause all sorts of terrible things to happen, which it didn't, arguably. I, but uh, <laughs> rat, this movie, I really... This movie showed on television very shortly after its theatrical release. I remember seeing this on TV no later than 1978 or 9, and it was only released theatrically in 76. And because I was huge into snakes at the time, and uh, so I wanted to see this badly. And uh, of course I was. I was a strange kid. Um, but yeah, there's some fairly nasty scenes in that, and also a lot of kind of slow stuff too. This is a Group One release, an Italian movie uh, with Gloria Guida. And uh, but what we have here are patrons from another film, another Italian movie, being interviewed, supposedly about the teasers. But they've just come from seeing a movie called The Stud. That's not even the title of it. The, the movie is called The Rogue, and it got re-released as The Stud. So it's not actually the, the Joan Collins, the no, stud. Oh. No, it's an Italian movie. Oh, here's a great exploitation. Yeah. Nasty classic oh, with Christina Lindbergh. Yeah. Which was released on a double bill with Dirty O'Neill, which we're going to be seeing in a few minutes. Uh, the TG spot for that. They came out together. Uh, and I guess didn't do all that well because uh, they call her One Eye was then re-released as Hooker's Revenge. 
Well, it's had a few titles. A year or two later. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is Big Zapper, which was um, Lindsay Shantif's attempt to uh, launch another secret agent series like his Charles Vine, aka Charles Vine films. He did four or five of those. Um, he actually made two of these uh, about this uh, kind of pri private investigator named Harriet Zapper. And the way to do it is not with that font. No. <laughs> I don't know what it's called, but that's There's the There's some unfortunate font. font choices with these uh, title cards. <laughs> that seems to be a theme. I think the second movie was called Zapper's Blade of Vengeance. Mondo Kane. Yeah, here's the one we were discussing. The, these were the trendsetters. The world is a dirty, creepy place. Better off to stay home. <laughs> Or go to the theater to watch it from a distance. Yeah, exactly. It's this so actually weird. a re-release of, uh, of the two films. Mondo Kane had come out in the U.S. in 1963. Ooh, can't watch that. And then the sequel was Mondo Pazzo, uh, which had come out in 65. Uh, and Jerry Gross, I think, merged with uh, the U.S. version of Grizzly Films. And so he got a lot of their films through that merger. So uh, I think cut both of the films and put them out together in 1970. Uh, Mondo Kane meaning dog's life, I think. Is it? World. Yeah. Their dog's, wor dog's yeah. world, right? Dog's and world, Mondo yeah. Pazzo's crazy world. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's kind of like Koyama Scotsy that way. <laughs> Dirty O'Neill. Here's Dirty O'Neill. A very racy TV ad. Yeah. Also known as the love life of a cop. This is uh, I like this movie. It's kind of like a uh, like a drive-in version of a of a Joseph Wambach. Yeah, it's very um, it's very sort of uh, just shambles along pleasantly. Like yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny, and then there's like some real menace also that, that comes in. Uh, I think there's like a rapist on, on the loose. Or oh, here's Invasion of the yeah. Beagles. Uh, another, uh, another from that uh, Siskel and Ebert Guilty Pleasure show. Um, Ebert was a big fan of this one. It's a weird movie. Yeah. Nicholas Meyer wrote it, right? I don't know. Before uh, Star yes. Trek II and Time After Time and then his uh, more celebrated sci-fi films. 7% solution. Yeah. And it was directed. I can't. Uh, Dennis Sanders, I think, directed this. Yeah. Uh, who is? I. I don't really know of anything else he's done. I think it was an Oscar-winning or Oscar-nominated uh, documentary. Oh, okay. He, he made a, a documentary in the late '60s. It's an odd choice to direct a movie like this. He was actually supposed to direct The Warriors. Really? In the '60s, yeah. Um, when AIP had the rights to The Warriors, oh, okay. he was going to be the director of that. But uh, this is a really fun film. Yeah. Girls are for loving with Cherry Kafaro. Yeah, the third of the Ginger films, and I, I think it's the best. Although, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're, they're they're all either equally good or terrible, depending on. Uh, all directed by her husband, uh, Don Shane, who wound up after they because they got divorced, I think, and he wound up moving to Utah and becoming a big like state film commission Utah booster. Huh. Weirdly enough. Uh, Russ Meyer. We finally yes. got to Russ Meyer. Yeah, with starring uh, Anuska Hempel, who's uh, also in uh, a Pete Walker movie, I think the same year, called uh, Tiffany Jones. Uh, this was shot in Barbados. That's David Warbeck, who just saw Oh, yeah. Uh, Bob Miner also, I think, started out his movie career uh, on this film. The Warbeck, of course, from a number of uh, Italian horror classics. Mm -hmm. This is re-released as Sweet Susie. Oh, six-pack Annie. Sort of a hornier, girlier Dukes of Hazzard. <laughs> 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 
And a pie fight. Yeah. yeah with, with a midget. <laughs> this is kind of a racy TV spot also. This, this, uh, I think the narrator says a story of little Annie Burton, uh, no, little Annie Bodine, and all the men she did. All the men she <laughs> well, does yeah. or something, yeah. 70s were different. And then, uh, Raymond Danton. Oh, Pedro Gonzalez Gonzalez. And then they, they have to put, yeah, Mr. Bates. Oh, Stubby I get K. it. <laughs> Very highbrow humor in this yeah. one. So and now we come to the single girls. United Producers film that went out there. Yeah, In a moment, there we are. Yeah. Waiting for you. Single girls. This is Fern Beverly Sebastian. This is kind of a, a slasher movie. Yeah, it's it's they they kind of sell it as a sex film, but it's really this very voyeuristic slasher film. Claudia Jennings and John Crather and uh, Albert Popwell, we just saw a moment ago. I had read somewhere that Joan Prather was the second choice for Jamie Lee Curtis's role in Halloween. Oh. I don't know if that's substantiated, but I remember hearing that somewhere. So that's Joyce Jilson, who was an astrologer who had a syndicated astrology column in like 200 papers. She claims that she told George Lucas that he had to open Star Wars on May 27, 1977, because <laughs> she was the uh, 20th Century Fox official secret astrologer who picked all their release dates. Mm -hmm. And I tend to think that's BS because she also claimed to be Ron and Nancy Reagan's astrologer, and everyone knows Joan Quigley was Ron and Nancy Reagan's astrologer. So, and, and she's a Capricorn who claimed throughout her life to be a Libra because she felt more like a Libra, and that's pseudoscience. Well, I think her husband worked for Fox. Okay, well there, yeah. He, he was a studio guy, and I think he pulled some strings to get her this role. Okay, that, which makes sense. And. She probably said to him in passing once, George Lucas should open that movie on the 27th. Because <laughs> Fox did so well with all their other movies back at the time. <laughs> this trailer gets dark fast. Yeah, you know, this is another one that was sold as a, a sexy film, and, and it's, uh, it's actually, it, it, it's also a, a bit of a slasher movie. Um, it's not as, not as much as The Single Girls is, but there, there is a, a an element of horror. It has a really good cast if you're into like the drive-in starlets. It has uh, Marky Bay from Sugar Hill, Roberta Collins from The Big Dollhouse, Christina Hart from The Stewardesses, uh, Lori Rose from Woman Hunt, and uh, well, if I'm, if I'm it took a turn. This, I've never, I haven't seen this, but is it about the roommates go on a trip and get themselves into trouble? Uh, a little bit, yeah. yeah it kind of sounds a bit like Young Cycle Girls that way, they, which is a similar... Well, no, they go to Brazil. Oh, okay. Yeah. Get started. It's basically, don't leave home. It's Stay in your home or you run into trouble and get murdered. It's, it's an Arthur Marks movie from, oh. from that period when he was you know, releasing Centerfold Girls. And, and, uh, and then, oh, yeah, no, here we have... The uh, Swappers. Or, no, this is Room of Chains. Oh, Room of Chains, yeah, sorry. This is yeah. a French film that Group One released. And uh, Group One was actually, at, at the time, in Scarsdale. Oh, not not far from... Uh, their, their office, actually, I drive past the building that was their office every time I go to the Alamo Draft House. There's, like, virtually no footage in that trailer. I think the title of this translated to The Special Love. Now, this is the swap. This, this is, is the, the Derek Ford yeah. movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, 
record. Released by AIP, and the, the music in this trailer is driving me crazy because I know I've heard it in one of the AIP's hippie movies. I, I'm not sure if it's Gas or The Trip, but uh, they, they would do that sometimes. They would just pull music from one of their other films and, and stick it in a trailer. Uh, again, no footage from the film. Uh, I think this was originally called The Wife Swappers, and AIP did release it as The Wife Swappers at one point. They showed it into The Swappers. Uh, Derek Ford was doing mostly sexploitation stuff around this time. Commuter Husbands, Suburban Wives, Girl from Starship Venus. Uh, yeah, again, Trans-American release. Commuter Husband sounds really... Uh... <laughs> Fast-paced and thrilling. <laughs> what happens while they're commuting back at the house? My men, my my. Now we have what? Swedish fly yeah, girls. Swedish fly girls. Which is actually uh, filmed in Copenhagen. Uh, there's nothing Swedish about this movie. It's all, all shot in Denmark. Uh, it was originally called Krista, who's the lead character, who is a stewardess. But um, at the time, one of the airlines, and, uh, I'm forgetting which one, but they had a, a, a big ad campaign. Uh, I'm, um, so I'm, I'm surely flying me. Right, yeah, I remember that. Fly me. Uh, and, and that led to the, the New World movie, Fly Me, which we talked about earlier. Also, uh, Swinging Stewardesses, which was a Swiss film, and uh, you know, Al Adamson's two films, uh, Naughty Stewardesses and Blazing Stewardesses. Uh, there was a, a whole string of, of uh, stewardess movies. Oh, oh, of course, started with uh, the 3D movie. Oh, right, yeah. yeah the, oh, the sin of Eve is clearly not using enough conditioner. Her hair is so skanky. This was another one that started off at New World. Oh, yeah. yeah, this and Twilight People were both New World films that went to Dimension Pictures. Um, so Jorge Rivera was the yes. Yeah. And this was after he had been in Rio Lobo with John Wayne. It, it received uh, co-star you know, co credit with, with Wayne above the title. Uh, speaking of Wayne, Beyond Atlantis, starring John Wayne's son, Patrick Wayne. Uh, this is also shot in the Philippines. This is an Eddie, Eddie Romero film. There was Sid Haig. Sid Haig, yeah. Um, it was produced by John Ashley, who uh, co-stars also. Uh, we see him there. Uh, I know he told Tom Weaver that uh, they wanted to do this as an R-rated film. They wanted Lee Christian, uh, uh, I think that's her name, the, the star, the, the blonde in the movie, to get naked. And Patrick Wayne complained he, he didn't want to be in an R-rated movie. I asked Patrick Wayne about that. He said, uh, I didn't want to be in John Ashley's movie. <laughs> I didn't mind being in an R-rated movie. It would just have to be a better one than that. Here's Summer Camp. Yeah, where did this come? What year? 79? Yeah, well, it was released in 79. It was made in 78. A Seymour Board and Associates release. Yeah, uh, Chuck Vincent film. So this predated Meatballs. Yeah, that was '79. A lot. It got re-released, of course, a lot in the wake of Meatballs, but yeah. it actually came first. Yeah, Here's Super Vixen. More Russ Meyer. Uh, yeah. Russ Meyer, the rural Fellini, as the trailer describes. Uh, this is kind of a, a mix of different Russ Meyer movies because you've got uh, Charles Napier uh, back as Harry. Uh, even though he dies at the end of uh, Cherry, Harry, and Raquel. Uh, and this is a trauma movie, yeah, I think. We finally got around yeah. to trauma. Yeah. yeah. 
We're actually kind of a charming movie. Yeah. Except for the barf noodles. I seem to remember it may have been um, uh, Siskel or Ebert or someone when they called this a dog of the week, but actually made reference to the fact that when the little exclamation point comes down with a little slide whistle, you know it's bad or something <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, these movies, this is before they got into the horror comedies like Toxic Adventure. Yeah. These were just very silly, kind of sexy comedies, and then some of them were actually pretty entertaining. Yeah, this one's funny. I yeah. Like Stuck on You is kind of funny, too. Yeah. So next we have. Oh! oh David Hasselhoff as Boner. And they actually uh, advertised this as a sequel to The Cheerleaders, too. I, I think it was the, the same producer. As the, uh, the 72 or 73 Oh, well, that, that's the great one. We're coming up on that one soon. The first time I saw this was on the USA Network. Cut oh, to pieces. I could, it was about 50 minutes long. Yeah, but it had, it had an extra scene or two that's not in the, the actual the theatrical version. Uh, this is uh, Massage Parlor Hookers, but it's actually Massage Parlor Murders. Oh, yes, the title um, under which it's sat on Blu-ray now. Yeah, uh, Film Ventures released this. This has a pretty good cast of, of uh, sex exploitation. Here's Chris Jordan, uh, also uh, Sandra Peabody from Last House of the Oh, right. Here's Swinging Cheerleaders, another cheerleader film. This one's by Jack Hill and has a, a pretty good cast. Colleen Camp, here's Rosanna Caton being menace. Here's Colleen Camp being slapped. Rainbow Smith. Oh, uh, Rainbow Smith. But she's actually the star of the film. She's a, a reporter for the college newspaper. She goes undercover mm -hmm. to write an expose But this one, for some reason for me, this one just stands apart. This movie is so raunchy and crazy and full of just insane stuff. This one has always made a much stronger impression on me than any of the other ones. Um, and I believe it was cut in some of its video releases. Mm -hmm. Well, it was cut theatrically, too. It was cut for an R. Because originally, I think it was a self-applied axe. Yeah, um, but I think it finally came out uncut somewhere. But um, I remember trying to find an uncut version of it for quite some time. Is this... Meyer? It's not a Russ Meyer, is it? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a re-release of... Um, is it Vixen? No, not Vixen. No, I think it's Common Law Cabin. Uh, I don't know it under any title, so... <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a very... It's kind of an awkward title. That, that's a tagline, not a title. <laughs> yeah, I think... I mean, I'm pretty sure it's a Russ Meyer movie. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm just trying to... As the room falls silent. <laughs> <laughs> We're at yeah. what the two hour twenty minute mark now, so it's <laughs> a, the fatigue yeah. is setting in a little, but we'll yeah. we'll power through this. You and you. Um, <laughs> I actually didn't watch this trailer prior to uh, this time here, so this, this is uh, a yes. new Incoming freshman. Yeah, this was uh, this was a movie. Uh, this was done by two University of Tennessee students. They shot it for I think it was under fifty thousand dollars in Knoxville, and uh, they sold it to Canon. And Canon shot footage like this uh, and ruined the movie. Uh, there, there is a, an edited version, or the original version is floating around as a black and white work print. And I've heard it's a nice little movie, and then Canon just destroyed it. There's a lot of those stories in the, 
This is a pretty raunchy film. This was shot in Florida by Wayne Crawford and Andrew Lane. And, uh, was this before or after Barracuda? Uh, before. Okay. Yeah. The star of this is Chris, there's Chris Mulkey. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, he had done only one film prior to this. Uh, he was in Loose Ends uh, for David Burton Morris. Uh, which uh, I guess got him this this film. Uh, the music in this trailer is taken from Three Tough Guys. It's Isaac Hayes music. <laughs> oh, now we're switching gears oh, a little boy. bit. This is Shame of the Jungle, which was also known as Tarzoon Shame of the Jungle. Uh, the first, I believe it was the first X-rated animated film. Before Fritz or, the Cat? Uh, or the first foreign one, maybe. No. Um, but yeah, this was, now when it was released in the States, um, yeah, it was definitely post Fritz the Cat because... The uh, U.S. version uh, was written by Ann Bates and Michael O'Donohue from Saturday Night Live, and a number of Saturday Night Live people yeah. came in and did voices for it. Uh, John and of course, she did the battles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Johnny Weissmuller Jr. I believe was called in to uh, to do a voice in there as well. Here's a movie you love that I just cannot find it in my heart to love. It's got well again, it's got early stop motion by a lot of you know people who yeah. become major stop motion people, uh, you know, or stop motion uh, artists. Uh, I'll always remember that um, I was on the phone you know, way back in my earlier Fangoria days with Scott Spiegel, and um, Jason Williams is the star of this. All of a sudden, I hear the doorbell ring, and it's like, hey, Jason Williams just came over. You want to talk to him? And I'm like, suddenly I'm on the phone with Flesh Gordon. Uh, there's, this is an obvious homage to Seventh Voyage of Sinbad here. Uh, there's a lot of kind of love of stop motion and science fiction in this yeah. that you didn't find in a lot of the kind of porno parodies at the time. No, no, absolutely. I just, there's a lot of stuff that isn't stop motion. That's true. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like Equinox that way, I guess. You, yeah. You sit through other stuff to get to the highlights. I, I like serials a lot. So, and I, I love the Flash Gordon series. Oh, me too. So yeah, I, the Buster Crab. I like this movie more than the show. I mean, really, uh, the only thing I don't like about it is Candy Samples. She's horrible. <laughs> she really is. I mean, they give her too much to do. Uh, but some, you know, there's John Alderman there. He's, you know, doing his, his gay shtick. It's Prince Alderman. Precious and the Merry Men. Yeah, he's in the Pink Angels, too. Oh, right. Yeah. But yeah, this this it's got. I have a charms. hard time believing Flesh Gordon advertised on TV. Did it? <laughs> this is a trailer. <laughs> a tra- okay. We actually we did this on another disc, I think. Yeah. I remember talking about this trailer before, and John Larroquette is one of the the voices here, isn't he? Oh no, um, not uh, Craig T. Nelson. Yeah, Craig T. Nelson is the voice. Larroquette is Chainsaw yeah. Massacre, yeah. right? Oh right, That's right, his right. Skeleton yeah, yeah. Closet, But Craig T. Nelson does. Uh, one of the voices there. This is Hustler Squad. Oh, and this is a Serio Santiago production. He didn't direct it. He just oh, it's a Serio Santiago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's basically a female Dirty Dozen. Or, uh, I think it was actually later retitled The Dirty Half Dozen. Uh, John Erickson is in this, uh, who had a career once uh, before this. He was on Honey West and he was in, uh, had the Black Rock. Uh, this, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of this movie. This isn't good even by Santiago standards. It's kind of crappy. Oh, Class of 1984. Shot in Toronto and it has some great, great scenes of seedy downtown Toronto from the 80s, like this on is Young a, Street. This is a really great exploitation yeah, film. There you, um, go. you know, Even mainstream critics like Roger Ebert gave this uh, positive reviews. It's uh, it's a really fun film. Well, it's fun to watch with a Canadian because, like, you know, I, we showed this at a marathon once, and like all these Canadians, oh, I went to that high school. Yeah, I remember them shooting that there. <laughs> <laughs> 
an early Michael J. Fox role. There's a lot yeah. to. Oh, it's oh, a lot. And here's King Frat. King um, Frat. Yeah. I've I've already talked on another disc about this was the Grail. I saw an ad for this in Variety when I was a kid. Spent years searching for it. Finally found it. It's awful, but it exerts a, a strange fascination. Um, several of the people who made this went on to the horror film Eyes of a Stranger. The uh, uh, Ken Wiederhorn, the director, Mark Jackson, uh, the writer, and John DeSanti, the Belushi stand-in, was the killer in Eyes of a Stranger. So this is actually a Shaw Brothers movie called Virgins of the Seven Seas. It was a co-production. They had um, the Austrian director Ernst Hofbrauer come to direct this, but they teamed him up with a guy we've talked about a lot, Kuei Chi Hung. And because Kuei Chi Hong could have the temperament to deal with foreigners. And it has all the sort of like dwarf tossing, kung fu spitting, <laughs> mass rape and torture you'd expect from like a, a Shaw Brothers pirate movie. It's actually pretty great. Yeah, I like the, uh, the olive pit. Yeah, the olive pit when they're spitting the, the kung fu spitting. Through, <laughs> Deadly like, yeah. pit projectiles. Uh, here's another Film Ventures, I mean, we just saw The Bot Squad, it's a Film Ventures release. This is uh, When Women Had Tales, an Italian comedy with Senta Berger, uh, also Frank Wolf is in this, as playing Grrr, that's his character's name, and Juliana Gemma. And some of the best hair in any film ever. And here's the sequel, Except the Sins of Adam Tales, and Yes. Uh, which sadly... Except uh, for that person there. Mario Adorf is in this also. Um, but... Uh, uh, Frank Wolf uh, committed suicide uh, midway through production of this. Well, that's yeah, a bummer. It's like, not only am I in one of these stupid movies, but now <laughs> the second one. Poor guy. Coming from Sergio Leone and Bradley this. The most treacherous animal in the jungle. So this is Tarzana, right? which I think this was rated X originally. Uh, this is an Italian film with uh, the name of the actress escapes me, but I know Beryl Cunningham is in this. Who is also in Weekend Murders, which we uh, saw the TV yeah. spot for earlier. And now we have oh, Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Yeah. yeah, this is uh, saying for the first time on the screen, and I do believe this is the first Bigfoot movie. This was made in 1970. Uh, predating by a couple of years the many kind of docudramas and uh, and fiction features about Bigfoot. Um, you know, the, the, the Patterson-Gimlin film had been out uh, for a little while, and of course, exploitation filmmakers jumped on the bandwagon. Um, we're going to get to another Bigfoot-esque film that was the most successful of all uh, in a few. But uh, that was the first. Ape. Now we have Ape. And I think most people uh, of a certain age remember this because of the famous Monsters of Filmland cover that had uh, King Kong-style ape wrestling a great white shark, and it said Jaws versus Ape on the cover. <laughs> and that painting made it look amazing. And then you see uh, the scene here. Uh, yeah, that's not quite what that, <laughs> not quite what that promised. Uh, this is another Jack H. Harris film, uh, and it was uh, shot in 3D and uh, exhibited in 3D. And I believe uh, there will be some 3D showings of it uh, fairly soon after. Some great special effects there. Um, this is one of the, the very cheesiest of the King Kong knockoffs to come out. 
Well, and also, I think at the end, it actually has a title card that's like, not to be confused with King Kong. If I recall correctly, it originally said, it compared it to King Kong in some other way, and Dino De Laurentiis threatened to sue, so they had to change it to not to be confused there with King go, Kong. There you go, yeah. Yeah, but ori- I think originally it said something else. So much better than De La- King Kong. Exactly, and then De Laurentiis said, no, 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 can't do that. Early, oh, No Mercy Man. Yeah. Uh, but early, early Dean Cundy film, right? I think it's the yeah. first thing he shot, actually. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we saw this at a um, Exhumed Films X-Fest, and when the Dean Cundy name came up in the credits, everyone cheered. And it's a really amazing movie because it's sort of like a Vietnam return movie, a, a biker movie, a revenge film. Like, it, a, it's got a little black exploitation edge. It's like just everything mashed up into one beautiful package. It's a really solid film. Yeah. Steve Sandor uh, went on, he was later the biker in... Um, Ninth configuration. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, Richard Lynch. Uh, he, he passed away earlier. Uh, here's uh, Lee Frost and Wes Bishop's Chain Gang Women, which is actually Chain Gang Men. Uh, but it was shot under the title The Chain uh, on weekends by Frost and Bishop. They did it, I think, originally as a short film, and then they brought it to Crown International to get additional funding. And... Uh, Lee Frost, when I interviewed him about 15 years ago, uh, told me that he said that they were pretty dense at Comic International. They didn't understand what he was trying to do. Like he, he would stop the projector and explain the scenes that were there, and he said they just didn't understand what he was trying to do. So he said, I had to go out and finish the movie, and then I sold it to them. Uh, he said they just didn't get it. And put some women in the commercials, and right. not in the movie itself. This is um, that's not a giant spider. That's a giant spider because this is the giant spider invasion. Um, probably, or I would say, easily the best known film by Bill Rabane, the king of Wisconsin uh, low budget horror. Uh, this is the movie that's notorious because the giant spider is actually a Volkswagen Bug with large artificial legs coming out of it that slowly drives down the street. Uh, you don't see it here, I guess, because we're about to lose this one, but. Uh, it's one of the most uh, famous and awkward uh, special, bad special effects in film history. This is the giant beetle. Yes. <laughs> the child, right? Yes. Yeah, which is such a weird movie. AKA Kill and Go Hide. Yeah. From Harry Novak. We're getting into Harry Novak territory now. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah. I think it was, yeah. This is like lots of POV shots wandering around the woods, lots of mist. Yeah, 1977, he put out, like, that was, like, the year he discovered the Eye of Reading. <laughs> he put out Kidnap Cohen that year. I, wasn't Axe that year, too? Axe, he tried to help. Yeah, and here's uh, the, the Redeemer, Redeemer, which is also known under its video title, uh, Class Reunion Massacre. It is a very strange film. It's another, you know, group of people called to a location and summarily killed off. Uh, they tried to sell it as, like, an Omen-esque film, but that's not really... Uh, a part of the plot line. It was just part of the sales on this one. That's Dimension. Put out many great films. Blood Demon. Christopher Lee. This is Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, from that, it's funny, you can tell just from that font, this is a Hemisphere movie. Sam Sherman, actually, because he was working for them at the time. His campaign always happens. The creeping, crawling terror that yeah, you can the IIP things. Yeah, you can, you can tell from the fonts on a lot of this stuff. I've actually never seen this one. Uh, it looks promising. <laughs> you are such an optimist. I know. Well, I try to give everything a fair shake. Well, that looks good. 
Blood Damn. Demon. This was, I'm sure, known under other titles. Throughout this yeah, Sam did the, ga the ghastly ones. Also, I found out recently. American International. And now we have what's Cannibal Girls. Oh yeah, th this is a great one. trailer too. Yeah. This is with um, Eugene Levy, very early role mm -hmm. for him. Yeah, Ivan Reitman uh, did this. This was all these people who would go on to be known. This is kind of a horror. Oh my God, that hair and that mustache. This this is a. And I love this too. The squeamish or prudish disposition. This is a horror comedy, a very strange one, uh, by people who, of course, would go on to do uh, a lot of classic comedy in the '70s and '80s. It's uh, it's been out on a bunch of discs, so it kind of got unearthed as a. A very interesting skeleton in the closet, and it's very Canadian. It just has that kind of Canadian veneer to it. You Not mean just it's nice. <laughs> no, it just if you watch a lot of Canadian films at the time, there's just this indefinable thing about it about them Rated that uh, that just signals them as Canadian productions. And this is Land of the Minotaur, which Jesus is a dumb movie. <laughs> it's, and like even this trailer is just dudes strolling to the mall, you know, like. Yeah, I remember seeing a, a photo of this in a wonderful book uh, called Horror Movies by Alan Frank that I got when I was on vacation in Australia as a child. And it was the first book or, or any place I'd ever read about Euro horror from the 70s because to most of the books at the time on horror, the, the history ended with The Exorcist or maybe even right. The Hammer. This book wrote about all the Euro horror and there's a full page photo of Land of the Minotaur complete with the Minotaur statue with its junk hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> Massacre at Central High, a great film. As I said, I saw this on a double bill with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, a precursor to Heather's. Uh, though Daniel Waters came to a convention I went to, and I asked him if he had ever seen this, and he claimed not to have. Um, but a great film by a director named Rene Dalder, who never really, after this, he never really got the, the uh, chances or the success he deserved. Um, but this is a really great kind of semi Satirical, not satirical, but there's a lot of social commentary to it, and really well directed, well acted too. Uh, Rainbow Smith is in that too, and, and a lot of other uh, good young actors. And, yeah, and now Death Ship. Uh, this is one of the Avco Embassy ones, and not one of their better ones. Um, as uh, the New York Times put it, it's about a ship that speaks German. <laughs> Basically. Uh, Cruise ship accident survivors go on board the death ship, which is an old Nazi torture and extermination ship, and get killed off in various ways. Um, I've heard of this movie. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, what else do you say at this point? I know. This, all, all I can say is that I remember being so excited for this. Uh, I left for summer camp the day after it opened, so I didn't get to see it when, you know, opening night. I knew it was going to be a big hit. It would be still in theaters when I got back. It was busted out to one tiny theater in Manhattan a month later. Finally got to see it there before it closed. Um, on the other hand, Halloween 2, one of my favorite movie-going experiences ever. I was 14. This was the first R-rated horror film I ever saw without a parent or adult guardian. I went with three of my friends. We went in our Halloween costumes because we figured they wouldn't be able to tell we were too young. What were you dressed as? Uh, I went as a kind of cut-rate Michael Myers, actually. Oh. And uh, Halloween night with an absolutely wonderful audience. I had so much fun watching this when I first saw it. And I still have a soft spot for it. It's not as good as the original, but it's still, I think, a, a pretty damn good movie. This, The Awakening. Um, <laughs> I was, as I mentioned, I went on vacation in Nantucket. Me and my brother went to see the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. They showed the full trailer for The Awakening, and I have never heard such uproarious laughter at a horror trailer in my life. Um, this does not really follow the no. same 
pattern as the trailer did, but the trailer had everyone rolling, like literally falling out of their chairs. Uh, it's not a great film, but it's not as, not as uh, unintentionally funny as that trailer was. Uh, now here's an interesting uh, case here. We have here the trailer for Horror Planet, which was originally called Inseminoid. We're also going to have an Inseminoid trailer a little later. Uh, this is one of these cases where, you know, when I was a kid, you know, obviously no internet or anything, so I would look in, uh, I think it was New York Magazine would list, you know, that came out early in the week and it listed in its movie section the movies opening that Friday. And I saw one called Horror Planet, and I was like, I wonder what that is. And it was only, you know, when it actually came out on Friday, and I saw the ads, and I looked at the credits, and I'm like, oh, I've read about this. It was originally called Inseminoid. And can I just say, it was presented by Run Run Shop. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, this is Blood Eaters, um, one of the very low-budget uh, post-Night of the Living Dead films uh, with John Amplis from Martin as the only person of any note involved. He's in the supporting cast. Uh, this is one of those ones where uh, I believe there's supposed to be like a military office and it's like a corner of someone's living room yeah. with the American flag on the wall, like <laughs> well, you were talking about It's like before. American Ninja 2 where they don't even dress in like military uniforms. <laughs> yeah, this, it was also called Toxic Zombies. Here's a really weird uh, commercial really for Videodrome yeah. with this very strange animation on it. Uh, this movie was supposed to open in October of 1982 as part of Universal's big genre year, 1982, the year of Cat People, Conan, The Thing, and The Dark Crystal. Uh, but it wound up getting delayed from its Halloween time release till the following, uh, early the next year in 83. Uh, it was a big box office flop, and a lot of the critics just didn't get it. Of course, it now has a, uh, a much better rep, but yeah, this is a very strange way to add. Well, it must be the production house that did the ad, right? That was probably their selling tool. We do these great computer graphics. Yeah, because I, I, I don't remember ever seeing this particular ad on television, it. yeah. but it's, uh, it's a very strange one. I don't think it sells the movie terribly well. It's certainly that that animation certainly has dated. This is a great film, really Alone in the Dark. Um, yeah, this this one. The reason I saw that I, I went to see this was, as I mentioned, I'd been at summer camp in summer of '82. Uh, became friends with a guy there whose who, uh, his best friend's father was one of the producers. So him and his best friend are extras in the big mall looting scene. So when this came out, we went to see it, not really expecting much, but we were all we were both kind of blown away by how good this movie is. It's a great yeah. satirical slasher film with an amazing cast, as you can see there. Uh, Dwight Schultz pre uh, the A Team. Uh, it was the first, uh, I believe, the first produced uh, first horror film produced by New Line Cinema, which of course led two years later to Nightmare on Elm Street. Again, what more do you say? This is um, yeah. you know obviously a trendsetter, but it was interesting, you know, to look back at the time when. Freddy was not. It's really a serious movie. Yeah, like it's but Freddy really was not grim, the jokes. Yeah. back when this was out, and it was a serious horror film, and then, you know, the teenage audience was screaming their way through it before he became the punster. <laughs> and more new line here, Extro, kind of a ridiculous movie, I think. Um, I don't know. It's got its own charm. Yeah, the the most impressive thing is this uh, kind of guy walking in the flipped over crab style in an alien outfit. Um, though actually when I first saw it the scene that made the biggest impression is when a woman gives birth to a full grown man but then it gets into like the stuff with the panther and the dwarf yeah. clown and it, it's basically a, a real kitchen sink of a horror film somehow managed to spawn two or three sequels each of which is a completely different story having nothing to do with the original so this is Amityville Horror 2 and one of the things that's really interesting is this came out in 1982, which is was sort of the climax or the beginning, I guess, of the Lutz family, George and Kathy Lutz, who are the original people in the house, when they realized that they'd sold their rights 
to this movie studio and they were really pissed and so this is the same year that the sequel novel came out by the Lutzes and that was their attempt to make their own alternate Amityville franchise mm -hmm. and you know the books did pretty well they're John G. Jones wrote them but the books are ridiculous well, it's interesting. Hans Holzer also had his own book franchise, one of which, uh, the which Amityville is, 2 is based upon. Based on Hans Holzer, yeah. Yeah, very loosely. They, which, he talks about the real case, not this demonic stuff. No, exactly. And that's, that's why Lutz was so pissed off. Oh, and off. The Fog is awesome. Oh, I yeah. skipped over that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and now uh, we have The Evil Dead. And uh, again, I remember vividly seeing this trailer in the theater. Uh, it was before Extro, actually. And it was full of bloody highlights. Obviously, you can't show them in the TV yeah. commercial. But I remember sitting in the theater watching the trailer for this, having read Stephen King's article in Twilight Zone magazine. Um, and then when it opened in 1983, not 81 IMDb, um, it just blew me away. I've been a fan ever since. I remember seeing this because I saw most of my horror on video. I saw two before I saw one. Oh. And two is funny. And so we rented one, and one's actually a legit terrifying movie. Well, was... I was terrified by it, and then I saw two. And for the first 20 minutes, I was like, this isn't scary. It's silly. What's going on? I didn't yeah. realize that he was I had intentionally the exact going opposite. for the humor. Yeah. Now here's Friday the 13th, and talk about like non-motivating taglines. At the end it says, you may only see it once, but that will be enough. And it's like, yeah. you're supposed to be encouraging people to see it multiple times, which it's people did. It was reverse advertising, yeah. like the devils. One of the few films in the summer of 1980 to make any money, which only added to its publicity. I think this and The Empire Strikes Back were the only films that entire summer that turned a serious profit. Uh, and then we get to Friday the 13th Part 2. The real start of the franchise, and, I um, think. Yeah, well, th this kind of overstates a bit. Uh, Twelve of her friends weren't horribly murdered. I think only about half dozen were. Yeah, it wasn't that many. And there was actually another TV commercial that continued the countdown. It counted you mm -hmm. know, 14, 15, 16, etc. I think up to 23, uh, following in the, the trend of the first one, uh, which was a really effective campaign. Uh, the, whole, the whole campaign that Paramount put together for these two films was really, really effective. And then it went on to 3D, and then... And then it went on. Went on and <laughs> on and on. Here's Motel Hell. Um, this came out at the tail end of uh, the fall of 1980 uh, horror films. For about four or five weeks, there was at least one, sometimes two, major horror films coming out literally every weekend, right up until Halloween. This movie opened, I believe, either October 30th or 31st, and by that point, the market was already starting to get saturated. And it was kind of an odd film. It's played for both horror and humor, which is reflected in both the trailer and the poster, but it just didn't catch on, though it's since become a cult film. This is a blind date, and if you thought that Videodrome ad was computerific. <laughs> Nico Mastarakis. Did this actually play New York? Um, I don't know if it, I don't think so. No. So I remember hearing about it, but I don't believe it actually played in the New York area. You know, the back in the... Releases, right? This is another new line. Yeah. But one of their smaller scale releases. Um, you know, that was the thing. Back in the day, sometimes movies would play uh, other parts of the country, but they wouldn't make it to New York City, and those of us in New York would have to wait to see it on video. Uh, here's The Unseen, uh, a movie that tries to convince us that Stephen First in a diaper is frightening. This movie has a really tortured production history. Um, uh, makeup masters Stan Winston and Tom Berman were originally producers. Um, and then it wound up being directed by Danny Steinman, uh, who wound up taking a pseudonym on it. It was a very uh, confused production. The, the movie, it has its fans. I'm unfortunately not one of them. Uh, but if you find, uh, there's a DVD version that tells the whole story, which is a lot more interesting than the film itself. Uh, here's Graduation Day, which 
really makes a lot out of the roller derby and uh, you know, rock concert things and not quite as much about this is the ultimate creative killing movie. Uh, creative killing was sort of a subset of slasher films in which the idea was to come up with the most insane ways to kill people as possible. Happy Birthday to Me probably being the ultimate example because they made that the centerpiece of the poster campaign. This movie is about killing people with athletic equipment in any way possible. <laughs> you know, uh, pole vaulting mat full of spikes, a javelin through a football, etc. Here's another movie that I don't believe ever opened in the New York area. This is Death Screams. Um, Do you remember this ever coming out? Oh, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, this was uh, directed by David Nelson of Ozzy and Harriet fame. Uh, he went from you know, wholesome family entertainment to directing a slasher film. Uh, but again, I don't. This is one that I remember catching up with on video. These are really quick trailers we're yeah. getting right now. Well, I think we're getting into the '80s or more. quick commercials. Yeah. yeah. So this is the children. Oh, right? man. Another one. This is one of the bigger World Northall releases. They give this a big push. This yeah. came out right around the same time as Friday the 13th, uh, with which it shares a few uh, crew people. And also Don't Go in the House came out right around this time as yeah. well. And this was also, this was sort of, I mean, at least as far as horror books and, and movies were concerned, getting towards the end of the killer child trend that started with The Omen. Yeah. Like, this was 80, I think, and already it was sort of a played-out trend. So it was well, a it was nice trying, attempt. It's trying to be topical because the children become yeah. killers because they drive through a cloud Toxic released waste. from a nuclear reactor. Yeah. You know, the China Syndrome had come out the year before, so they were tying into that. And here's Don't Go in the House. Jesus Christ trailers. Stop telling me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because Variety pointed out that it's grammatically incorrect. You know, it should be Don't Go Into the House. Don't Go In the House, as they said, sounds like a command for unhouse trained poodles. <laughs> this is a nasty film and it was shot right around your area, I guess. In, uh, yeah, in New Rochelle. Yeah. This is a nasty, nasty film. Uh, and another nasty film coming up here. This is Mother's Day. Uh, this is another one yeah. of those commercials where my mom saw it and said, you're not seeing this. Because uh, they make a big deal about how graphic and violent it is. And um, Despite, uh, you're going to see at the end, uh, Lloyd Kaufman, brother of director Charles Kaufman, and Michael Hurst were associate producers, but uh, this was not a trauma production, nor was it a trauma release until it hit video. It was released by United Film Distribution, uh, who had had a big hit with Dawn of the Dead, and uh, so as with that one, they self-applied a known under-17 tag there. And now, Go Canada! Oh, yeah, well, this is probably my favorite post-Halloween slasher film. I've always been a big fan of My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. Um, interestingly, this obviously was uh, timed by Paramount Pictures. Uh, in the wake of Friday the 13th, they wanted another holiday horror film. So this came out uh, around Valentine's Day 1981, which coincidentally fell on a Saturday. So it opened on a Friday the 13th, which was the day before Valentine's Day. So you had two horror tie-ins in one there. That is a great title with the hearts. Yeah, well, that's the title from the film itself. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's uh, so good. Really good film. And uh, now we have, uh, this is Screams, Screams of Winter yeah. Night. Uh, this is the only film uh, directed by James L. Wilson. Uh, though he has a couple of acting credits, including playing Santa Claus in a TV movie called Lefty the Dingling Lynx. Uh, though, however, the star, one of the stars of the film, Gil Glasgow, actually has about 60 IMDb credits. Uh, it's an anthology, again, PG. Uh, there's a Bigfoot story, a Psycho story. Um, not a great film, unfortunately. Uh, though kind of an interesting example of regional filmmaking. It was shot down south. Uh, warning! 
there's a transformation in this movie uh, that is not in the book that it's based on. In fact, you'll see it's based on the novel by Edward Levi. Uh, producer Harvey Bernhard only read the one-line description of the book in a publisher's catalog, loved the premise, bought the rights, and then completely had Tom Holland rewrite an entirely different story. The book is actually pretty good at, at telling a very different story than the film does. Uh, you got a very, very quick glimpse of that uh, transformation there, which and is pretty spectacular. Music by Les Baxter? Yeah, the, it's one wow. of the last films uh, that he composed, I believe. Yeah, the king of, the king of South Pacific slang. So here's uh, Deadly Blessing. Um, we won't get into the whole Joe Westerhaus thing here, I guess. But um, uh, yeah, this was a, a, one of several Wes Craven films on which, unfortunately, he ran into creative interference from the producers. Uh, they insisted on a very silly ending that was tacked on at the end of it. Lots of animal horror. There's that spider, there's a snake, and there's even chickens that erupt out of a coffin at one point. And then he knows you're alone, marriage fear. Yep. Who have you met? And this is an early Tom Hanks role, too. Uh, his first film, I yeah. believe, yeah. Because shot was, all shot on Staten Island. Was Mazes and Monsters before this? But that was TV. I think that was after. After? Yeah. Okay. That was 82 or 83. This was yeah. 1980. And he's, uh, it's actually a little meta because he talks about horror films, you know, predating Scream and everything. There's oh, yeah. a bit of meta going on in here. Oh, great and story about this next one. Uh, I'll start early. We're going to get into Demon Seed, in which Julie Christie is impregnated by the computer her husband had designed to run the house, voiced by Robert Vaughn. I heard a story, not sure if it really happened. Uh, Vaughn obviously only did the voice, never met Julie Christie on set. So it is said that uh, one day he walked into a restaurant and saw her sitting at a table. So he walked up behind her, you know, where she couldn't see him, leaned down and said in her ear, You've never met me, but I raped you once. <laughs> Again, don't know if it's true, wow. but <laughs> yeah. someone told me that story years ago. Um, switching gears, literally, we have The, the Car, car uh, which... Uh, this is a movie that mixes some really good, stylish, and eerie stuff with some of the worst dialogue and acting of the 70s. Uh, I read somewhere that uh, a Universal executive decided on this project over Star Wars and uh, lost his job as a result. And also that the script for it sold for $350,000, which at the time was an was astronomical a, yeah. sum for a screenplay. That's Esterhouse money. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a cult favorite now, but at the time it got some of the worst reviews ever. Uh, it's it's better than that though, man. Some of that dialogue and some of that acting. Mansion of the yeah, uh, Michael Butler, Dennis Schreier from uh, a, yeah, a couple of Clint Eastwood movies. Mansion of the Doom, kind of a loose remake of Eyes Without a Face. Uh, very loose. Lance Henriksen is in there minus his eyes. Yeah. Um, it's a very it's a weird movie. It's a very dirty, uncomfortable film. Well, I always wondered if Lance Henriksen felt bait and switch because his opening scene, he's like in a swimming pool yeah. with this beautiful woman making out, and then within twenty minutes, he's like locked in a filthy basement with his eyes gouged out. Uh, early makeup effects for Stan Winston on that one, by the way. Now this is an interesting one. This is the uh, British reissue of Assault on Precinct 13 and Halloween. Uh, I'm going to assume that this was put together by Miracle Films, which was the uh, UK distributor originally for both of them. What's interesting there is that Assault on Precinct 13 did almost no business in America, but it was fairly well received at a big festival yeah. in, in London. Yeah. So it was picked up by Miracle Films, successfully released there. The head of Miracle Films was a man named Michael Myers. Uh, ergo. Uh, John Carpenter paying a sort of tribute to him by naming the villain in Halloween after him. Uh, I also remember I went to uh, London with my family in the summer of 1979 
Halloween had just opened there, and I started reading about it in you know the local newspapers and magazines, which was really the first time I heard significantly about it because when Halloween opened in New York in October of 1978, there was a newspaper strike on, uh, so the New York Times and the Daily News were not publishing. So there was very little newspaper publicity about movies like during that entire time. So all of a sudden I was in London reading about this movie called Halloween and how amazing it was. So when it was re-released a year later, October of 79, I went to see it uh, and it basically changed my life. It got me hooked on horror and uh, it has led me to this point right now. Sitting in this room. Sitting in this room. Uh, wait, what is this? I thought we were up to... Oh, this is... Um, is this... Oh, the tenant. The tenant. Yeah, and I love the line in here. It's, no one does it to you like Roman Polanski. Yeah, a year oh. before he got into his trouble. So. Yeah, <laughs> rather bad time. And this there. is actually based on a really amazing 1964 novel by Roland Topor, and it was supposed to be the screenplay was supposed to be written by Edward Albee originally. Really? Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, for probably obvious reasons, it fell apart. And the rumors it's something like. What year did The Tenant come out? 76, I believe. Because I think, like, um, they asked Polanski to direct it after they acquired the novel, and he had no interest. And, like, a decade later, he's like, well, the timing's right. Let's do it. Well, this got really negative reviews at the yeah. time it was released. I was doing some research on it, and I was surprised. Roger Ebert panned it. Uh, a number of critics gave it really poor reviews. And uh, like so many films of the 70s, it's only in the years since that it's yeah. been uh, properly reappraised. And the book's quite good, too. And the book expands on it a lot. I mean, it goes outside of the apartment and stuff. Now, here's... We were talking about Bigfoot movies before. Yeah. The most successful Bigfoot-esque movie ever was this one, Legend of Boggy Creek. Um, this was made by a guy named Charles B. Pierce, who basically... Uh, I believe he was in industrials or advertising at the time, but he pulled together some equipment, uh, completely non-professional cast, made this film, and then four-walled it around the South, where it did huge business, and then went on to get acquired... Rated G scared the shit out of kids for years, yeah. both in theaters and on television. And I'd just like to correct, I think Harry and the Hendersons financially is the most successful uh, Bigfoot movie ever. I don't know. I think, I think Boggy Creek was a lot more profitable, though, considering how much it made versus what it cost. Sharks versus Swingers. Sharks versus Tintorera. Naked People. Yeah. Tintorera from mm -hmm. uh, Rene Cardona, or Rene Cardona Jr., Junior. I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who had previously written Survive, directed by his father, Rene Cardona. Uh, and then later, Rene Cardona Jr. combined the to in a movie called Cyclone, in which plane crash victims are eaten by sharks. Um, Susan George, uh, lots of nudity in that one, and occasional shark attacks. So, Now, here's the Inseminoid trailer. Um, so I... God, I hope I can tell this story in enough time. When I was in high school, my art teacher's daughter was working for Almy Pictures, and he would bring me in uh, you know, posters and stuff from their upcoming films. He brings me in the poster for Inseminoid, which is basically... A shot from behind a woman with her legs spread and a creature reaching out from between her legs, zapping a couple of astronauts. Um, I'm not sure how many territories it played as in Seminoid, but I can only imagine that that ad campaign <laughs> probably pissed off a few people. And, and there may, it may have been protested, and that's what led to them changing the title. This is The Incubus, Ugh. about a demon with an enormous penis uh, raping women to death in a small town. And it's based on a book by Ray Russell, who wrote a book called The Case Against Satan, several years before The Exorcist. It really is the template for The Exorcist. He does a bad job and, and doesn't do a great job with it, but it's 
it's it's kind of fascinating that that's so far ahead of The Exorcist. And Rob John Huff, the director, had just been doing Disney movies up until then, so obviously he decided he wanted to change of pace. Well, yeah, and and also it's not. I gotta say there was a big trend in horror, at least of books, of books about uh, incubuses, you know, with giant penises murdering women with them. It was a little sleazy. Well, there's an incubus in Deadly Blessing, which was not in the film until the producers decided we needed to see it. Frogs, Sam Elliott, killer reptiles, and other fauna. What can, what more can you ask for? Another great tagline today: the pond, tomorrow the world. Blue Sunshine. Jeff Lieberman. Yeah, yeah his second film after Squirm. Uh, this is one of the early, um, basically drug horror films. It's about a version of LSD with delayed reaction that turns people into bald killers. But also a, a conspiracy movie, yeah. sort of, right? Yeah. It's, it's got a lot of things going on. Yeah. Uh, Zalman King, a uh, future softcore yeah. uh, hero starring in this one. Softcore hero. <laughs> He's my softcore hero. And now we come... Oh, we're getting close to the end here. You don't um, sound so excited. This is, no, it's, it's gone by faster than I thought. Um, Halloween, Halloween yeah. I mean, I, I saw this commercial. I had no idea what I was in for. Um, you know, I had seen... By fall of uh, 79, I had seen Jaws and Alien and Phantasm, and I thought I knew what scary movies were, but this movie just terrified me, but I walked out of it exhilarated, and um, it just set me on that course, and I think it did for a lot of people. And then we've got Phantasm. Phantasm was actually the first R-rated horror film I ever saw in a theater. Which is, and it's a really weird movie. I mean, like, two it doesn't follow, three, yeah, yeah one is... Bizarre. It's so disjointed. It doesn't. It was a weird film to see as an early horror film yeah. because it does not follow any traditional narrative patterns. I just remember when the Silver Sphere came out, and um, at the time I was used to the idea that horror films would build mm-hmm. and like get scarier and bloodier as they went along. Here comes the Silver Sphere. I think in the first half hour of the film, and drills that guy's head open, yeah. and blood goes everywhere. And this was not the rhythm of horror films that I was used to at the time. So every time I even heard that damn sphere, I had my hands ready to cover my eyes in case it was going to get as disgusting as that. But uh, yeah, th- this uh, this is still a great film. It holds up really well. Um, yeah, there's obviously the recent Blu-ray re-release and everything, and uh, it still holds up. The original Amityville horror, oh, man. You know, and I just want to take a moment to give a PSA here. Please go watch the documentary, My Amityville Horror. Oh, is, what a great film that yeah, is. Yeah. Which is Danny Lutz, who is the oldest of the Lutz children. Uh, it's a documentary about him talking about sort of what really was going on in the house, which was basically child abuse. Which is a lot more frightening than anything yeah. in this. But this film was a huge grosser. It was one of the huge. top grossing films yeah. of the year. Uh, and again, I think probably the, the most one of the most profitable films, considering how, oh, yeah, how yeah, little yeah. it costs compared to the studio films. Well, that's why time. George Lutz hated it so much, because he felt like that money was all rightfully his. You know, he had a lot of problems, as well, you yeah. see in Miami. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Killer's Delight. This is an unknown quantity for me. Yeah, I've me never too. seen this one. I've seen it. It's uh, shot in 1976 as the support killer, and then... Released in 77 as Killer's Delight and then re-released in 81 as The Dark Ride, which was the Oh, right, okay, video. right. I'm familiar with The Dark Ride. I did not know that was it. Yeah, James Luizzi is a cop trying to catch a serial killer played by John Carlin, who's later on Cagney and Lacey. This has killer animals, killer kids, and psychics in it. <laughs> like, it's like the, the trifecta. And this uh, predated Kingdom of the Spiders by a few years, I believe. Uh, Harry Tarantula's always been scary. Kiss of 
But yeah, the, the tarantulas are just a part of this one. I, I vividly remember the final scene, which you saw in one of these trailers, where uh, the girl lowers a paralyzed, pleading man into a coffin. He's a bad person, so he deserves this scene right oh, here. Man. This freaked me out because it's like five minutes of him begging her not to put her, put him in this coffin where she's going to leave him to die. And uh, here's a, a double bill re-release yeah. trailer, Phantasm in the Fog. You got a little De Palma action going on. Yeah, there, some split, split screen. screen. There's some really great juxtapositions here. Like there's a shot of the little kid in the fog with Angus Froome saying, "Boy." Uh, but this was Avco Embassy, which was the major force in independent horror in uh, the early 80s. They put out so many great films. The Howling was another one. Uh, you know, Escape from New York was one of theirs. They were really the force in horror at the time. Road Games. Road Games. Oh, they, and that only played one theater. That got a kind of specialty release in New York, so I never got to see it. It played one theater. Uh, and now this is kind of an odd way to end it. This yeah. is a, uh, a triple bill that promises shock, terror, horror that will disturb you forever. Rated G. Uh, because this is a 1972 re-release of three classics uh, from way back in the early days of cinema. Uh, Bela Lugosi, not as Dracula. Uh, though Mark of the Vampire was directed by Todd Browning, who had made Dracula. He actually plays uh, Count Mora in the film. Uh, however, I must say, um, Mask of Fu Manchu, for its time, is a pretty nasty film. It, yeah. It's basically like the saw of its day. You know, it's basically Fu Manchu putting people in all these horrible death traps. So even though it's not bloody and the style is obviously old-fashioned, it, it's pretty disturbing at certain times. And Mask of the Vampire is kind of the unofficial remake of... Um, oh, London After Midnight, After Midnight. Yeah. Right? yeah. So uh, thanks to everyone for listening. I yeah, hope you've enjoyed you. this as much as we have talking about them.